The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. That's right, it is the grand finale of season two of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. Our show is all about the movie subgenres you may have forgotten you even loved. And our second season rounds up the usual and at times rather unusual suspects of what we call charming thief movies. This particular episode is really unlike anything we've tried before. I'm getting the crew back together for one last score before season two is in the bank, and that means there's a whole gang of fast-talking and sometimes shady guest hosts with me today, ready to take on a movie we've been waiting patiently to cover. It's the acclaimed 2001 Steven Soderbergh-directed ensemble Casino Heist remake, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, and Andy Garcia. You, of all people, should know, on our podcast, there's always someone watching. This is Ocean's Eleven, Part One. And here with me in a live tabletop panel. This is not something we've done before, but we're trying it here at Studio K. Our previous subgenre guest hosts and my periodic partners in crime outside of this thing. We'll go around the table here and introduce everybody quickly. First off, I have TikTok celebrity Charlotte Moore Lambert. Is that what you'd call yourself? I would not call myself that. No, I don't call you that either. But <laughs> <laughs> I would also uh, not call myself a uh, human skin suit full of spiders, but apparently everybody else does now. I saw that on the internet. Fair. It must be true. <laughs> you saw it there. It's true. <laughs> To my left, I've got playwright Alan Mall. How's it going, Alan? Thrilled to be here and amazed you've had me back again. I am too. I am also. Yeah. yeah. I think we all may be. <laughs> the friends list just keeps getting shorter, but I stay on it. <laughs> to my diagonal, if you can call it that, is uh, we're just going to call you the film guy, uh, oh. Nick Heim. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. All three of these people who are in studio with me today, Charlotte, you have uh, co-hosted for a couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. I think in season one, we did Crimson Tide. <laughs> and in this season, you were with us in the first episode of season two to talk about the Thomas Crown Affair. That's right. The 1999 mm -hmm. edition. A very fun movie. Alan, uh, season one, U571. I talked you into watching it, and I hope you didn't regret it. I didn't, actually. It was it was actually a pretty decent movie. Spoiler for anybody who's going to listen to that episode. It was fine. Josh actually liked it. Was it. Fine. it gets a B minus. <laughs> And Nick Heim, Nick, for the listeners listening to this, you have only just That's aired true. Yeah, this, I, this last month. Ours. Yeah, so at the time of this recording, your episode hasn't uh, even been uh, completely edited yet, but by the time this is out, you will have been talking to me and the rest of us about The Great Muppet Caper. The Great Muppet Caper. It was a lot of fun. And joining us, too, not at the table, is uh, another returning guest host who couldn't bring himself to fly all the way across <laughs> the country to join us for this little dog and pony show, but... But uh, joining from the left coast is return guest host Fabian Marquez. Fabian, how are you? First time caller, long time fan. <laughs> 
Fabian, you were with us in season one to talk about, was it Run Silent, Run Deep? Yes. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun for you. And um, <laughs> it was fun for me too. <laughs> you see what I did there? I yeah. did. Also, I, did. I feel like Fabian's the only person here who has any real Hollywood Facial credentials. Like, oh no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> no, he is he is legitimately hated in Hollywood. Yes, they ran me right out of town. Know who we are. Actually, they call uh, a movie that bombs uh, "Doing a Marquez." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure real. that's what they call "Doing a Marquez." I've heard it as something else. <laughs> Urban Dictionary yeah, I'm told me I'm something. I'm glad I upgraded to that. And it turns out, in my case, you can get arrested. And <laughs> well, all of these numbskulls are here because I asked them to. And at this point, I'm not sure why I did that. But <laughs> they are all here to join me in talking about a film that I am certain is going to be one of our best episodes of this season or any season. And it's going to be so good and probably so long-winded that we're going to break it into two different episodes. So what you're listening to now is part one of our episode on Ocean's Eleven. Part two of the Ocean's Eleven episode will come out a couple of weeks after this one has posted, I'm hoping. If you find the other one doesn't uh, show up until a month or two down the line, just know I was putting extra love and care into it for you. Mm, I want to give the people time to make sure they hate it. (laughs) (laughs) It's quality control. (laughs) You're used to us sounding a certain way. If we don't sound that way, that's because we're, we're sitting in a slightly different part of Studio K. Um, we are all sitting around a round table, save Fabian, who's joining us through the magic of the internet. And so this is going to be what it's going to be. And if this turns out to be something kind of fun and, and something kind of different, maybe we'll do it again. Mm. If it's terrible, then we'll burn this episode and never speak of it. Oh, good. Let's talk about Ocean's Eleven, the universe. Ocean's Eleven, the film that we're going to cover, is from 2001. Mm. This is a remake of a film that came out a long time ago. It's a, it's a Rat Pack film, originally, and so it was remade um, by Soderbergh, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. Has anybody here seen Ocean's Eleven prior to watching it for coming yes, on here? I've seen it a million yes. times. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, I've seen it. I actually saw times. it at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood originally, Beautiful. and it felt very, to this. very appropriate. Yeah. yeah. This is I think one the proper that term is is Asian theater. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the That's noted Asian Americans who owned that theater, the Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think of Ocean's Eleven, this one that we are talking about, it just always takes me back to being in a dorm room in 2002, where this movie was probably on on repeat while we were yeah. downloading, using LimeWire to download. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, uh, li- Hanging by Warm, a Moment by Lifehouse or something oh. else that was also popular in the, yeah. in the early aughts. Yeah, you were downloading viruses. Is what you were downloading. <laughs> we <laughs> all were. uploading viruses. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen this version prior to here. Everybody's a veteran of watching it. Has anyone seen the original? No. 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 Mm-mm. Me either. My oh, intention man. was to watch the original Me before too. we got on here so I could sound smart, and I didn't. Me either. <laughs> I, I have failed okay. you, Josh. Has anybody seen the sequels? I haven't yes, seen... Yes, I've seen all the sequels. I didn't Me see too. 12, or yeah, 12 or 13, but I did see eight. Eight is probably the best of the sequels, I think. And generally, not talking about this one, because we'll talk about this one in the episode, but talking about all the other ones you have seen... Hmm. What's your thought? This is the best one by far. I agree. I mean, I did enjoy eight. I, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it. And I, I saw it in the theater in just the one time, but this one has such play value. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just, I don't know. It's, it's like a popcorn movie at this. It's like a comfort film. Oh, it's, it's ultimate popcorn. Yeah. Like it's just enjoyable and breezy the whole way through. Your stress level never moves. Like the needle never moves the whole viewing experience. You can just be like, oh, I'm just enjoying the moment. Look at these attractive people chasing Mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love this. It's handsome money stealing. (laughs) 
you know what? That's exactly what it is. And I <laughs> yeah. love that. Yeah. That was the original title. We all sort of generally have the same experience and the same impression of the film kind of going into this. So we're going we're gonna to try to round that out and get a, get a little deeper into it as we go through. We're going to start as we do with all of the different movies that we cover and really set the scene for this thing for the audience, for people maybe who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time. We all have our individual pours of whiskey, so that's going to help as we go. But let's really set the scene about Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 version. So I'll kind of lead this off and just mention, as I did before, that this is a remake from a 1960 Rat Pack film. Something I thought was a little bit interesting was that the Rat Pack had multiple iterations over the years and that the original Rat Pack was actually Humphrey Bogart, Errol Flynn, Nat King Cole, Mickey Rooney, and Frank Sinatra. Whoa. And that Lauren Bacall actually named them the Rat Pack because she said, you guys are like a pack of rats who are always hanging out at my house. (laughs) (laughs) And then the the group changed over time. And in the 60s, it became the like that was in the late 40s, early 50s. And by the time they got to the 60s, it was the group that we know of as the Rat Pack from the movies, but that they were this kind of unofficial buddy group that used to hang out at Humphrey Bogart's house. That is a incredibly cool Rat Pack, except for Mickey Rooney. Like what? (laughs) He's doing his Asian impression. Right, yeah, yeah. One, one of cinema's greatest moments. It's pre-canceled. Yes. He played the Yen character, you know, because yeah, he folded himself up inside the the money container. Oh, a, it's an all-time classic of racism. Well, this is the last episode of this show. Um, this movie came out in 2001. I think it was December of 2001. So this was a Christmas movie, right? Yeah. right? Not a fun Christmas. If Not you remember, a fun Christmas. Oh, remember no. that year. I don't think anything big happened that year. And we are actually going to talk about that here in just a little while. So okay. keep that in the back of your head. But keep in mind that this was a Christmas movie. So the one thing you want to go watch when it's time for Santa is people stealing stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Released by Warner Brothers, a budget of about 85 million or so, brought back roughly 40 million, I think, in its opening weekend, uh, and then went on to make money on money. Yeah, it was very successful at the time, but I mean, that's a pretty big budget. Yeah. But I mean, with the number of people in it, I guess yeah. it's not yeah. surprising. Salary cap was probably a huge part of that. Yeah, one. for sure. Directed by Steven Soderbergh. Anybody a Soderbergh fan? He's yeah, solid. Yeah. I mean, he's he has some great films under his belt. Oscar winning director, I think, won for Traffic uh, the year before uh, this mm-hmm. came out. Oh, by by the way, yeah. the year before was a banner year for him because he got double Best Picture nominations. That's right. For he did. Brockovich and Traffic and won for Traffic as Best Director. Oh, he did Brockovich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was up for Best Director on both of them? That I don't know, but yeah. but it was nominated for Best Picture. Right. Uh, both films were nominated for Best Picture. So this was like a victory lap for him, which he could have just phoned it in, but instead he turns in this masterpiece. And I yeah. think, didn't Roberts get the Oscar for She did for Brockovich, yeah. yeah. Produced by Jerry Weintraub, who you might know if you're a Karate Kid fan or watch Diner or Cruising or any of those other interesting fun movies. He was a music tour manager for many years for like Elvis and Frank Sinatra and Bob Dylan and like huge, huge acts, but then was more known for the the movie stuff. I got to look this up, but I think he makes a cameo in Ocean's Eleven. Weintraub does? He might be the guy that's chumming up with Carl Reiner at the table when... when, Oh. In the Baccarat room, you mean? I think so. I got to look that up. I got to confirm. Hang on. Okay. Anyway. Uh... Written by Ted Griffin. Uh, Ted Griffin, who has written a few different things that are pretty cool, Matchstick Men, others, but wrote one of my favorite films and a film that I hope to cover on this show someday, which is Ravenous. Oh, Anybody seen Ravenous? Oh, it's one of the best relatively underknown, underappreciated films of the 90s. It's, uh, is it 90s? I think it was 90s. I'd have to look it up, Josh. It's a period piece cannibalism movie. (laughs) 
fantastic. I remember, cool. I remember it when it came out, but I, I did not see it. With Guy Pierce, yeah. About the original era of cannibalism. Follow up here. Yes. Jerry Weintraub did do a cameo. He played Denny Shields, a high roller gambler, who I have to think is the guy that's at the uh, okay. at the Baccarat table. Starring, of course, the likes of George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Andy Garcia, all people who you would not miss in a crowd, but has a lot of co-stars in it where, you know, we're talking about that budget. This is definitely pushing the budget up towards the edges because you got people in this film like Matt Damon, Elliot Gould, Carl Reiner, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Scott Kahn, Casey Affleck, Eddie Jemison, and uh, a guy we'll talk about in a while named Shalbo Chin. I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, you know, I think it's interesting that we've got Matt Damon as one of the co-stars here mm. instead of one of the stars because he was still like really at the beginning of his career yeah. at this point. Yeah. When you watch it, it's like a oh, little baby Matt Damon. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. weird to have him be the lesser star in a movie yes. because we're so used to him being the headliner. There's even, well, we'll get to this, I guess, later as we're going over the plot details, but there's like a moment where he awkwardly jumps onto a van off of a roof and it's like he was about oh, yeah. to get much better oh, at yeah. doing and that. Jumping on stuff? <laughs> yeah, in the, in the following year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting was 97, mm -hmm. so his yeah. star was on the rise, but right. he wasn't yet a full household whole name. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I even, I mean, I'd seen Goodwill Hunting, I'd seen Talented Mr. Ripley, things like that, but I don't I don't know if I was like entirely on board with Matt Damon at that point. No. Yeah, I mean, he was like the young guy. He wasn't the big star. You know, he was like yeah. a good extra flavor. He wasn't carrying a movie on his own. Yeah. Gotcha. It's like, is, is that Ben Affleck's friend? Like, <laughs> right, basically, yeah. Friend. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I did not know until I was researching for this film, I guess I'd never paid attention, that the cinematographer, Peter Andrews, is just a pseudonym for Steven Soderbergh. So, oh. Soderbergh shot this. Oh. I, I mean, yeah. you can tell it's, it's his handheld style. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he never met a tripod in his life. <laughs> it has to be edgy and feel realistic, yes, Nick. Exactly. It's really good shooting, though. It is. Like, oh, I mean, is. he's a great DP. I mean, mm -hmm. he's got a good eye. Can you imagine, though, directing this level of talent, directing this tight of a script, and having to pay attention to shooting it? Yeah, like picking your lenses and at the same time. No, that's nuts. Edited by uh, Steve Marione, Marione um, who edited a lot of big picks uh, like The Revenant and The Hunger Games, but started out, or not, maybe not started out, but one of the smaller ones uh, that I also appreciate, which is Swingers. Mm. Yep, another get 90s us, classic. Get another John Favreau, yeah. Yep. Another Vegas-y oh, yeah. sort of pick yeah, there. Yeah. Music by David Holmes, who did Out of Sight and Analyzed That. The soundtrack, actually, an uncredited soundtrack production by Danny Bramson. Danny Bramson has a resume a mile long yeah. for putting together soundtracks for movies like Say Anything, Magnolia, and Singles, things with like really awesome soundtracks. That's Danny Bramson. And that's one of two uncredited things in this because uh, Don Cheadle is not credited in this movie. Either. That is oh, true. Yeah, he got in Wait, a, what? Yeah, he got in a contract dispute about being above the line, listed in, in the credits above the line, and they couldn't come to an agreement. So he said, well, then I just don't want to be credited at all. Then got his above the line credit on two and three, I believe. Yeah, he did. I wouldn't want to be credited with that bad accent either. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> We're going to talk about the accent. Don't worry. We're going to talk about the accent. Um, what are you doing, Don? <laughs> You're better than this, Don. Mm -hmm. I know we're going through a lot of crew here, but this is a really, really insanely well done movie. And so I just want to give credit where credit's due. So casting here is a big thing. Casting done by Deborah Zane. Production design. There's a lot of great production design in this movie by Philip Messina, who had worked with Soderbergh on Aaron Brockovich and also did things like Eight Mile and Hunger Games. Costumes. Jeffrey Curlin did those. Uh, Collateral Inception, Dunkirk, lots of big stuff like that. And I've decided that 
here and there, I'm gonna start giving a special shout out to crew members that don't get recognized very often. And I'm gonna give the shout out this time to a position that I've actually done on a film set, which is the second second AD. Not the second AD, the second the second. 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 Oh. And uh, second second AD on this is a, a person named uh, Basti Vanderwood, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, that's correct. Basti is my, my boy. If you're listening, we're, we're gonna recognize you. You started on the Perez family, ADing the Perez family in 95, and uh, most recently is doing stuff like Fear the Walking Dead. So. Where he's first AD. First AD. First AD. Yeah. Oh, worked his way up. And that is a listing, only a partial listing, of the talent that was brought to bear on this film. Let's talk about this movie when we cover our feature presentation. That's right, our feature presentation is Ocean's Eleven from 2001. As always, our job here, among other things, is to spoil this thing for you. So if you haven't seen the movie, turn this off, go watch the movie, come back, listen to this in part two. If you have seen the movie, then spoilers don't matter. Everybody ready to spoil Ocean's Eleven? Let's yeah. spoil it. Man. They've had 21 years. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ruin some days. <laughs> we start this movie off, of course, with our charming thief, Danny Ocean, as played by George Clooney. I think the parole board is a good way to start the movie because it's basically just an exposition dump disguised as a scene, right? Like you get four scenes worth of information about Danny Ocean with a voiceover from off screen of this parole board person who you never have to even see. And then we're off and running fast, fast, fast. You get that he is a criminal. We get that A from he's just sitting in a parole hearing and two that they say that he has been accused of a bunch of stuff and he confirms he's never been convicted. Yeah, yeah. something along those Never been charged. Never been charged. Never, never been charged. That's right. For confidence schemes too, I think they yeah. mentioned. Mm -hmm. We introduce the wife. He talks about I've been in a self-destructive pattern since my wife left me. Yes. And Which is important because you don't see Julia for 45 minutes yeah. into the movie. Yep. This is not a female-friendly film. It's all dudes all the time. I was going to say one of the parolees that you do not see is one of the, I think, four female voices you hear <laughs> in the entire movie. Yeah, the ladies yeah. are not well represented in this film. There was a reason yeah, for Ocean's 8 to be correct. made years <laughs> later. And we get his personality, which is going to play a huge part in all of this because he is a con man. Right. And so we get to get a really quick understanding of who Danny Ocean is, and that is someone who is very quick on his feet and quick with his mind. I think yeah. it's worth noting that he never answers any of the questions posed to him directly. Mm -hmm. mm. Questions about, why did you do it? And he just says, I was, he doesn't even say I didn't do it, or he just says, I was never charged. And then even uh, there was, when he says that he entered a self-destructive pattern and yada, that, I can't remember exactly what the question is that he's answering there, but it's another one that he just dodges around. And then we never see how he actually answers the question, what will you do once you're out? We just get that little smirk <laughs> and then they cut away. I mean, this whole movie coasts on George Clooney's charm. He is a natural movie star. He's Cary Grant. He's on screen and you want to watch what he's doing and he's interesting and engaging immediately. Yes. And we get to follow him. We don't know yet what he's going to do when he gets out, if he gets out. We understand very quickly that he does get paroled because the next thing we do is we see him going and collecting his personal property, which includes a wedding ring, I think. He, mm -hmm. he slips on his he finger. Yep. And 
A tuxedo. Yes. I love, so the tuxedo I love because that little element alone describes or alludes to what he was doing when he got caught. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they never tell us that yeah. really. And ever. It, ever. Yeah. It's ever. a great little bit of just like coloring in around the edges. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. Which they call back, right? Because then when he's arrested the second time later, it's also in a tuxedo. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it gives us visually, again, we're not talking about your run of the mill bank robber or petty thief. We're talking about somebody who does extreme extravagant things extravagantly. And it's worth noting that he's been in prison for four years and the tux still fits him perfectly. Yes. So he's been keeping in shape. Keep, keep it a tight. He's, he's been preparing. <laughs> he's going to put that f***ing tux back on, oh, on one of these days. The only thing he hasn't been doing is shaving. In that scene, he's got this big full beard, but the next moment... He doesn't, though. Does he not? No, he has a beard. He okay. has the he, kind of like, uh, oh, brother, we're out, though. Yeah, yeah okay, that's true. And I kind of had forgotten until I rewatched it that the beard looks very nice. This is not a man who lets his appearance get out of control. But in the next scene, he has gone back to his old slick self because he is face. clean shaven, mm. baby face, in a tux again, or as close no, just to a nice suit. Nice suit, yeah. Nice, suit. nice dark suit. Coming up an escalator. Into a casino. Smooth as hell. This one, not in Vegas. Um, he starts out in Atlantic City, which mm. I believe is where very close by to the prison. You can see even as he walks out of the prison, there are all the Jersey cop cars behind him, which is really okay. the only thing that tells you. Every other scene in the movie, there's a little lower third thing that shows you where you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, It cuts around as they're picking up the crew. But I don't think at the beginning of the film, they tell you that. I think you just have to pick that up from scene clues. I think you're right. Not the The first place you would expect a person who has a parole officer, you know, all of those things to show up in a casino. But this is where Danny chooses to go. And he's there for a very good reason, which is he's going to sit down at a blackjack table. One thing regarding his attire with the tuxedo and then the slick suit that he's in in the following scene. I'm glad you brought up the costumes by because I didn't make the connection, right? Jeffrey Kurland also did Collateral and Inception, Mm -hmm. which are both films in which the men are like impeccably dressed in suits, like in Collateral. Uh. Cruise has that like gray, like shark shark suit. suit. Yeah. And Inception, all the dudes are like impeccably dressed with these like really well tailored suits. And and, and if you're doing a suit movie, I guess that's the guy to call. (laughs) That's the dude. That's the dude. I need that suit from Collateral. That suit is great. I haven't seen Collateral. Have you not? I'll look it up. Oh, yeah, you should see that. I'll look up the suit. Danny is at the Atlantic City Casino. Like we said, he's going to go over and play some blackjack. Okay, fine. He sits down at a table with a dealer, has a couple of minutes there with the dealer, and all of a sudden, the dealers change out shifts, and here comes a dealer who, if you look at his name tag, is named Ramon. 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 Ramon is actually not Ramon. He is somebody else uh, that we will find out named Frank Catton, who is played by... Bernie Mac. Mm. Bernie. Pour one out for Bernie. Yeah. Bernie is a former blackjack cheat, I'm guessing, (laughs) who has now turned blackjack dealer Mm. and is doing that under an assumed name. Nobody at the casino seems to know that. Danny Ocean definitely knows that. Yes. And they have a moment of Danny calling Frank by his real name, which Frank hasn't heard in a while. Frank denying that that's his real name. You must be mistaken, sir. My name tag says Ramon. And then suggesting that maybe Danny try the Caesars Lounge at about 1 a.m. 
is one of the first of those many moments in the movie where like there are the people in, in the scene that are in on what's happening and then there's everybody else and this is the kind of banter that would completely go over the head of like a casual bystander but to the cool guys to the featured <laughs> actors it's like you must be mistaken sir but you could go to this other bar at 1am yes. and perhaps find what you're looking for and everybody else would be like oh whatever there's a script they all know to follow yeah and even just the appearance of ocean always clues these guys in there's this sort of shadow that passes across all of their expressions where they have to they know something important is about to happen they have to get into character bernie mac funny guy to begin with mm -hmm. but playing this character who has to rein in their <laughs> funniness or their craziness or whatever and try to keep it together but often cannot or uses it to their advantage. It kills me this entire movie. Yes. Yeah, he's great. And then they do finally let him kind of let loose near the end. And it's extra fun because of it. So it's the Caesars Lounge. It's 1 a.m. Danny's hanging out waiting. He is taking the moment to look at a newspaper. And in the newspaper, he's reading about a Las Vegas casino. Sorry, a, a news. See, back a long time ago. <laughs> What is this news? What is the news? Newspaper? We cut down trees and smushed them into paper and then put stuff Sounds on them. Sounds violent. Read. It is. Yeah. It's very violent. <laughs> it's like TikTok, but it hurts the earth. <laughs> so just like TikTok. <laughs> Oh, 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 got it. He's reading a newspaper. In the paper is a story about a Vegas hotel that is going to be blown up and raised to the ground. And featured in the photo that accompanies that article is a person that we are going to come to know very well. We don't know him yet. We don't know his name necessarily yet. But this is uh, Andy Garcia's character, Terry Benedict, mm -hmm. who is a, Such a, great name. a mogul along the lines of a Steve Wynn. Frank shows up, the code worked, grabs a drink next to Danny and says, what's going on? <laughs> Has Danny seen their mutual friend? We don't know who this friend is yet. Has Danny seen the mutual friend? Oh yeah, he's uh, teaching celebrities teaching, cards. Teaching yes. movie stars how to play cards. Teaching yeah. movie stars how to play cards. So this is right about the time too of, we weren't quite to the moneymaker poker boom yet but this is kind of leading into that right yes yes yeah. there yeah and internet poker is not quite a thing yet just want to note that this is still a few years before everybody had phones people were yes. starting to get phones yeah. at this point but there were still a lot of us that didn't have them i did not have a cell phone in 2001 i yeah. did not yeah, have I mean, a cell phone in 2001. i got one in 2001 I yeah think. and so there's still so much of this movie that is dependent on old school communication and one wonders how the movie might have been different if cell phones were a factor but there's yeah. so much of it where you're just like this would have been a lot easier if they could have just like taken a picture of the thing or yeah, yeah. yeah. julia roberts specifically says i don't have a cell phone later mm -hmm. in, yes. in the film which yes. is a weird thing to hear now cell phones ruin everything <laughs> they sure do frank wants to know does danny have a plan yet danny of course doesn't answer him the same way he doesn't answer the parole board he just kind of gives the smile of course he has something brewing right um before he can do anything about whatever plan it is he has brewing he's got to call his parole officer rings up and says, yeah, I'm here. I haven't been drinking or anything. He uses his, um, pull, his what is it, sort of his gravitas, yeah. his authoritative, like I guess sort of submissive, like, no, officer, I wouldn't dream of leaving town. And yeah. no, of course, I haven't been drinking. I've been on my best behavior. It's very convincing. And, and the, it's all lies. And the last word to him is, no, I wouldn't dream of leaving the state. And yeah. all of us watching this thing by now know that he's lying yes. through his teeth. Just in case you didn't, the Trump building is directly in the background <laughs> of this scene. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, that yeah. was the thing I noticed. Is I'm like, oh, right. they are in Atlantic City. Yeah, so. I got it on my list here too. Oh, oh. for folks at home, his notes say Trump Plaza. 
sad emoticon. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the emoji. No. It's the emoticon. No, we're with back the in 2001. Face. We don't right. use emojis. Very <laughs> yeah, timely. Guess what's being digitally erased in the next release of this sucker? <laughs> we do jump now to a different state. Yeah, uh, so we it's jump Los Angeles. Los Angeles. We jump all the way to the other coast. Not yet for what Danny is doing, but to meet that mutual friend that Danny and Frank have, Rusty. Rusty Ryan, I think is his That's first a name. Poor name. Played Why by Brad Pitt. Why is he using Rusty Ryan, man? <laughs> There's some bad names in this. Yes. <laughs> I think Terry Benedict is a terrible name. I like also. it. Like, you can't have a bad guy named Terry. <laughs> like, oh no, it's Terry. Here he goes. But his last name He's is coming. Benedict. But Benedict. Benedict oh. is a good He's name. Benedict? He's Benedict. He's gonna yeah. continue. Okay. <laughs> you guys all got it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Commit to the bit. Rusty is doing what we have been told Rusty does, which is he is teaching celebrities to play cards. This one, is one of my favorite scenes. One would assume for their though. roles, but the part about this, so they they're in a back room of some club in, in Hollywood playing, you know, around a poker table. The best thing about this to me is it's all real celebrities using their real names. That's Topher. Right. Topher. Okay, so, so I was rewatching. I had kind of forgotten about this scene. And when Topher Grace first shows up, I'm like, Topher Grace is in this movie? But he's in it playing himself. But we're introduced to him. Brad Pitt's character, when Rusty and Topher, as Topher, they walk into this back of a kitchen, basically. And Topher's like, hey, uh, so I was talking to my agents and, uh, you know, they understand this arrangement and everything, but I'm going to have to start paying you by check. <laughs> and Rusty just looks at him. And then Topher's like, or cash. Cash is great. Cash is good, too. And it's just like the way that this man bullies Topher Grace immediately. <laughs> With no words. With yeah. no with words. And then ushers him back into their weird little it's, poker room with strippers in the background. <laughs> it's so good. And Topher Grace as like the sleazy Topher Grace. He's got, yeah. the, he's got like he's a goatee great. going on. They all have a good kind of self-deprecating shtick going yeah. on here that I like. And yeah, they've deliberately, they've picked actors from like Seventh Heaven and Dawson's <laughs> all the, Creek. All the, all the, Charmed. Yeah, Charmed. And Charmed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And none of them are the leads. They're all the secondary characters. I love that tonally this this is like the first time I think the movie's winking at you a little bit yeah. where it, I don't know about winking is the right expression here, but it's this idea of like we're having fun. Like you get a real sense throughout the film, especially increasingly so as it, as it wears on, that all of them are having a good time making this movie. You, you yeah. picture them just having a blast and tonally, the way they're kind of winking at you here and how good naturedly, you know, Joshua Jackson and Shane West and Holly Marie Combs are kind of making fun of themselves is such a tickling kind of moment. I think that's, <laughs> that's a germane observation because now that I think about it in that context, it does seem like even the leads are playing sort of distilled archetypes of how we think of them mm -hmm. you know like George Clooney and Brad Pitt here are two very handsome charming men being extremely handsome and charming yes. and then all of the others sort of have these particular aspects of their personalities that are played up yeah, this really is handsome money stealing the movie. Uh, <laughs> yes. That was an alternate title when they were worried works. about the apostrophe yeah. in oceans. Yeah. You know, it's... One more note on this scene, because I think it's actually a bigger, big scene, is that it's also almost 20 years later, we get the movie Molly's Game, which is the real story, Jessica Chastain mm -hmm. playing someone. And, and they did a similar thing in that movie um, where they had like Michael Sarah basically playing himself. That was a real thing that was going on in Hollywood. And I love that they put it in the film, but they didn't make it part of the marketing campaign. They didn't make it like a BuzzFeed story or whatever, if BuzzFeed even existed that wasn't back a then. Thing. No. Okay. What about newspapers? Was that <laughs> <laughs> News. Newspapers? Yeah. 
did this <laughs> bit already. Right. Although it is, it's interesting too because like if you had a poker scene in a movie, even like three or four years later, it would have been Texas Hold'em, and instead they're doing like five card draw instead, which you just never right. see played anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, right. you can tell it's before the poker boom. It's a whole right. different thing than pre-rounders, you know. <laughs> well, it's an interesting reflection of how people think of themselves when they are gambling. These actors, they think of themselves as badasses. They're throwing around terminology they don't understand, and then just wrong terminology. And at the end of the first round, after about an hour of game has been played, you know, Topher Grace is like, I got all reds, baby. (laughs) Throws them down. They all start high-fiving across the table and And, you know, Pitt's ostensibly been teaching them for some time. (laughs) They should know better by now. But this is how most people playing cards. There's something that automatically makes you feel like a badass when you're, like, doing the subterfuge of mind games. I'm watching for your tells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, he just ate a cookie. There's a lot of Dunning-Fruger at work. (laughs) Yes. When you're playing (laughs) poker and you don't know what you're doing. One bit of trivia additional to this, as long as we're talking about it, and talking about eating a cookie, I now have cookie in my mouth. Oh, good. That's good radio. There. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am pretty sure that the Holly Marie Combs part in this, uh, the seat around the, the table, based on the dialogue in the scene, I believe that was originally supposed to be Katie Holmes. Oh. And for whatever reason, kidnapped or... or <laughs> Other. She was busy she, with Tom. She was busy and couldn't make it to that one. <laughs> Might have been. Yeah. So are we, are, and I don't know, are you planning to move on? So there's an intermission in that. Yeah, tell right. me. So, okay, so there's a terrible first round. Rusty takes a break, goes out, drinks another whiskey, watches the strippers, doesn't feel invested in that. Goes back for the second round, and when he returns to the celebrities... Who is there? George yeah, Clooney right. George is there. Clooney. George Clooney's there. Thanks and again, in the beautiful suit, just looking the picture of competence. And it's like, he's debonair. He's got the cards in his hands already. And the celebrities are like, hey, we found this guy. He's he just yeah, picked him cool. up off the street. He's obviously been playing for a while as yeah. well. Like it, yes. a lot, long enough for them to be comfortable with this guy playing cards next to him. And it's really interesting how his presence alone changes the chemistry in that room. Because all of the other players, as incompetent as they are, seem to recognize that this man is on another level and they all suddenly seem to take this much more seriously they want to impress this guy they know the stakes have been raised and then he and Brad Pitt have this great back and forth where they have to pretend they don't know each other but there's all this between the lines stuff of like where Clooney reveals that he's just gotten out of jail and what what was he in jail for? It was what was it stealing masks? Stealing yep. Incan matrimonial head, head masks. masks. Yes. Right. Which, We've all been there. <laughs> which is apparently a great gig yeah. if you don't get caught. And that also, like, why was he wearing a tuxedo when he was stealing the Incan matrimonial head masks? Like so many questions. Mm-hmm. If this movie was made now, we would have a prequel where we would find out yes. what happened with the face masks. Don't then, give them ideas, please. <laughs> And then there's this thing that he and Rusty do because they were partners before. They both understand that right now they're going to con these motherfuckers. <laughs> With eye contact alone, Rusty leads the celebrities to believe that Ocean is bluffing. He's got nothing. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them buy it and they fold. And the rest are like, nah, they go all in and Ocean's got four of a kind and ace a, kicker. An ace. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know what the four nines mean, but I think the ace is pretty <laughs> I good. I think the ace is pretty good. I like and the idea he's on the eve of a $160 million heist and he still wants to win like $70 from these guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, and he clean. I mean, he basically cleans them out. Yeah. And the celebrities are like, "Thanks for the advice, Rusty." <laughs> and they only do that for fun. Yeah, of yeah. course. And so that, yeah, I think that establishes a really important rapport. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the moment you talk about when they come back in and he's sitting at the table is such a good illustration of George Clooney's star power. Yeah. Like he just commands the screen whenever he's on the screen. Like yes. he, we were watching uh, When Harry Met Sally a few weeks ago, my <sighs> wife and I, and Meg Ryan, when she's on screen, is just like, you can't stop you want watching to look at her. her. Yeah, she's just like yeah. so effortlessly charismatic. And he's the same way. You know, yes. you just, I want to see what this guy's up to immediately. Yes. And in the universe of the film, he's not a celebrity. And these celebrities, even though they're B-listers in the context of the film, they think they're all hot sh- yeah. Why would they let this guy in unless he was somebody? He was cool. And this reunion of those two guys who obviously have a long history with one another is going to be vital for the rest of what is going to play out over the course of this film in ways that we as an audience can't even start to comprehend at yes. this point. Right? Yes. There's, wheels there's some within wheels. Wheels within wheels. Exactly. And so after they leave this game and they're leaving with whatever money that they have managed to siphon off of all of these TV stars, they drive around town. Cool shot. Shot, you know, little, yeah. the, the moving shot yes. where they're having a chat. And to me, part of the funny dialogue in this is I think Pitt asks Clooney, did you get the cookies I sent while you were in prison? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and Danny's response is, yeah, that's why I, I came to see, see you first. first, which he didn't. He went and saw Frank first. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yep. it's, it's good banter. So what's your plan, Danny? That's the thing. I know you got a plan. That's why you're here. What's the plan? What do you want? And Danny lets him know he wants to not only rob someplace, he wants to rob someplace in Las Vegas. That place in Las Vegas is not just a casino. It is three casinos. Yeah. And he doesn't even say the word three casino. He just holds up three fingers. <laughs> the three fingers, as we come to find out, represent the casinos, the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand. I don't know for sure, for real, whether anyone would do this, but for the purposes of this film, all of them are for real located near one another on the Las Vegas Strip. Hmm. But here, they're all owned by the same person and all of their vaults feed into one another. So there's like, there's just a, there's a central vault yes. for these three different casinos and that's gonna be the score. Is that a thing? It's ambitious. I don't know if that's a thing. What? The I'm, word not, score? I'm not in the casino business. <laughs> it's po- pooling your money. Oh, whether they're all like whether they're all actually big... interconnected. Probably not. I'm uh, guessing no. Yeah. yeah. It isn't now. It used to it be at the Bellagio, now. and now it's like, <laughs> son of a bitch. All right, now we got to change now that. The way they know this is because they're looking at blueprints. We find out very shortly that they are not their blueprints, that they are in some architectural firm or something where they are stealing these blueprints. The security guard is on the payroll because he lets them, whatever right. you need, guys, right. you know, just right. lock up when you're done. <laughs> and Rusty is the one who puts it together and says, oh, all of these are owned by Terry Benedict. Yeah, I think this is also the first scene where Brad Pitt is not eating something. He's eating something in almost every oh single scene. He's just feeding his face throughout the whole thing. Good for yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. Do you know why? No. I've heard a couple rumors, but I'm not sure which one's correct. I don't know which one is legitimately. Fabian, do you know? I don't know. Okay. Uh. What I have heard is that the production schedule for this was so aggressive and Pitt was on so much that he would often complain about not getting to eat. Ah. And so suggested that this become a character quirk. And so he would eat in every scene and so therefore would be fed. Wow. Which probably he regretted in the scene where he has to eat shrimp cocktail the whole time. (laughs) I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh my God, how many shrimps did this guy have to eat? Uh, The correct amount of shrimp to eat in any given sitting is all of them. All of the shrimp. Well, then he ate the correct (laughs) amount of shrimp. 
so this movie came out right before we filmed uh, Better Luck Tomorrow, and we had this character named Han, played by Sun Kang, who was our cool guy, Fonzie. And um, we were so in the thrall of Ocean's Eleven and impressed by it that that was something that Sin took away from the Brad Pitt character and applied to the Han character in Better Luck Tomorrow. And then as Han got transposed into the world of Fast and Furious, Justin just kept on rolling with that. So the reason that you see the character of Han- Always eating. Eating a lot on camera is directly wow. inspired by the pit performance. That's in, very uh, cool. That's from- Fabian is also the writer of Better Luck Tomorrow, which he didn't tell you up front. <laughs> the Oscar nominated. Show. The Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated film. Immediately you regret bringing all this up. Why? <laughs> no, you're you're the only one with the credits you're the only to talk one who's about. got anything going on <laughs> Whenever I talk here. about a bunch of short films and ads. I make videos in my bathroom, dude. If, in, if any of us are ever going to meet Don Cheadle, it's only through you that that's going that's to happen. That's correct. Alan and, died 32 years ago. He's a ghost. <laughs> Still trying to make that score. <laughs> Point of clarification, though, more people have seen one of Charlotte's TikTok videos than have seen, you know, Better Look Tomorrow in its entire 20-year history. Yeah, but they're all teens. What's Those a TikTok? <laughs> it's like it's a newspaper, except it's bad for the earth. I'm going to tell TikTok about this podcast and this movie, but so many of the people who watch are going to be like, the f- is Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the first Iron Man. Wait, right, right. They'll probably know, they'll, but they'll be like, uh, Bernie, Bernie Mac? Yeah. Like, oh. 2001, you mean when my parents were old? Yes. <laughs> when, yeah, when I was conceived. When my parents were old, that yeah. didn't make me sense. <laughs> my parents were there young. There are occasionally, there have been TikToks where the kids refer to the older generation and they are talking about people born in the 90s. <laughs> this is why I don't like kids. We end this scene off with Brad Pitt giving one of my favorite lines, I think, out of this film where Danny asks him, what do you think we're going to need in order to get this done? And off the top of Brad Pitt's head, he says, I think we're going to need a Boski, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethro's, a Leon Spinks, and the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever, which all are code for various cons right. that they're going to need to now, have pulled Do off. you know, are they real codes for cons? That I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I know what it they're... It sounds cool. I know what they're supposed to be. It's weird. Listing them off like that makes it sound like he is a, like a short order cook. Yes. You yes. know? Of two rafts on a boat or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you give me a a cat in a bathtub and a Bernie's python. <laughs> I'll take a John Ham twice done. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. If he I, would fit in this movie. John yes, would. he would. If IMDb is to be believed, uh, that list was made up by Soderbergh. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, we'll go through them really quickly. So the, the Boski is uh, named after Ivan Boski, who any of you were alive in the 80s like I was. He was a big Wall Street huh. trader that was taken down for security frauds. Right? I, I can't. Can we are I can. all old. I mean, I'm... I don't know how old you are. Jim Brown is named for the American football player, Jim Brown. So it's a, a strength you know, okay. thing, I, I imagine. Miss Daisy is a driving, right. so we're going to need a driver. Yeah. Two Jethro's oh, uh, right. means we're going to need two hillbillies. Two hill, basically those, two hillbilly those type. The, those are the Mormons. Yeah, that's the Mormons. That, <laughs> yep, exactly. The Leon Spinks. Spinks was a boxer. We're going to need the big boxing match thing, etc. And the Ella Fitzgerald hmm. is, I think, we're a gonna reference. We're going to need someone to sing? I don't know. See, you got to go even further back for this. So the Ella Fitzgerald, I think, is a reference to, back in the 70s, there was a commercial for Memorex where is it live or is it Memorex? Memorex was a tape, like a cassette tape that you record things on. And her voice would, when she would sing, ah, the big high note, it would break a glass. And then they would show that that was actually coming from a Memorex tape, not her actual voice. And so the tagline, is it live or is it Memorex? So it's all the like feeding the 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 recording stuff. stuff Exactly. Wow. So whether all of that is 
partially real, not real at all, makes any sense. It's a great line. Mm -hmm. Really impressed by your extrapolation there. I like you're like, I don't know what any of these mean. Now let me tell you what they mean. I'm reading. I'm I'm reading. I'm faking that I know these things. Drag a lot. I can read. (laughs) It's the largest screen in the house. So if you need all of those things, you're going to need a crew. If you need a crew, you're going to need money. And so money is the first thing that they need to go after. This is going to take a lot of money. Who do we know that has a lot of money to burn in a grudge against Benedict? Oh, yeah. Reuben. Oh, Reuben. Elliot Gould Elliot and his Gould. exceedingly low necklines have come into the film now. <laughs> there is an in-between scene before they get to Reuben, because I want to spend some time on Reuben. There is this little scene where after they've got the blueprints, they're standing in front of the elevator, and Rusty says to Danny, just level with me. Tell me exactly why we're doing this. And Danny gives him this speech about most of the time the house always wins, but if you can wait for the right time and then bet big, then you take the house, which is this wonderful encapsulation of maybe what could be his motivation. And mm. Rusty sees right through it and goes, how long did you practice yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a nice callback to like, everybody has to stay cool throughout this entire movie and Clooney gets a little too hot. Yep. And then Brad Pitt brings him back brings down him back. with a joke. You're a little bit too in character right now, my man. You don't have to yeah. you don't have to play this up for me. Yeah. I know what we're all about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we mentioned Ruben. Ruben is the potential money man. Ruben played by Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, of course. And his low necklines. Oh, his low necklines. Chest hair extravaganza. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. It's yeah. art. They are at Ruben's mansion. I'm assuming Vegas mansion. They're at Ruben's mansion around the pool. They're having lunch. Ruben is there in a bathrobe and very little else. This is just Elliot Gould playing himself. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I choose to believe. You know? (laughs) And they aren't necessarily pitching him on doing this. They are just sort of mentioning what they're doing. And that is that they're going to take down a casino and uh, Tishkoff, Ruben, doesn't think that's a great idea. He tells them they're insane. Yeah, they're insane. He tells them they're insane. He What he says is that, listen, I, I basically invented the casino security system and there's no freaking way. Here are all the layers you're going to have to get through. You, out of your damn minds. <laughs> uh, then they're like, all right, you know what? You're right. You're right. Uh, our reach exceeded our grasp. Thank you so much for lunch. And Gotta that's go. a classic con maneuver to make the person ask you to do it. Right. right? Like mm-hmm. They make him call them back. He can't help it. Yeah. He well, he explains to them first why they're out of their minds. Right. And you, you get the little montage scene of the three biggest heists, quote unquote, that ever, yes. that ever succeeded in Vegas. None of which succeeded. None of which succeeded beyond <laughs> the parking lot. And the last of which is a dude gunned down in the, in the, the circle drive <sighs> of Caesars to yes. take my it's great and little do you remember if you get that far you're in the middle of the desert (laughs) right they pick up and walk away and leave him to kind of chase after them like you were saying nick and which casinos did you say it was just for the record and they started you know what what was was the ones we were saying is the uh the bellagio oh yes the uh the bellagio the mirage and the and immediately immediately ruben's like those are terry benedict's places oh yeah oh yeah they are are they oh yeah okay right right. and then we get that callback to that newspaper article about the casino that's about to be demoed Mm -hmm. and it's revealed that this is ruben's casino and he's pissed at Benedict for buying it out from under him and then blowing it up to put some monstrosity there. Even so, Ruben's position, at least outwardly, is to say, you're out of your minds. It can't be done. It's impossible. Except for... Who do you have in mind? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and But even then, he's like, look, if you're going to do this, you better 
damn no <laughs> that this guy isn't going to just end you. He's going to end your family for the next seven generations. Mm-hmm. If he catches you, you're going to need someone who knows what they're about. How can I help you? Which leads us directly into everything that we need to know about all of these ancillary characters, these other members of the team in a big montage. Get a montage. Yeah. Oh, you I love got a montage. Starting off with Frank. You gotta have Frank. Frank we've Bernie met Mac. before. Yeah. Bernie Mac. He's been dealing blackjack in Atlantic City and has apparently put in for a transfer to warmer <laughs> climates because of his bronchitis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Taking a note from Doc Holliday, he needed a drier climate uh-huh. for his uh-huh. easier and I would just this wonderful little shot where he's like he's in the the office of the Atlantic City because he's like, <laughs> and then the, they put in his trance from the very next second he's got that million watt smile just like heading into in Vegas, a cab in Vegas in a cab in Vegas exactly where he wants to be mm-hmm. the next two members of the team that we get invited to are the the Miss Daisy end of this or the two Jethros I the guess Jethros. it's the two Jethros they're the Malloy twins they look nothing alike they're no. the Malloy twins we get, twins. they could be fraternal we get noted creep Casey Affleck <laughs> and cinema nepotism winner Scott Kahn <laughs> as the least Mormon Mormons I've ever seen. But Turks. they're so good in this movie. <laughs> they are. Good. With the names Turk and Virgil. Right. And we meet them in the midst of what you imagine is I, I think uh, it's said they're having trouble filling the time yes. in between jobs and we, we meet them doing this awful race between an RC truck and and the full-size version of that truck painted identically. The monster truck. The monster truck. Which I think is all just set up so that he can have the remote-controlled van later like and yes. have it be yeah. set up by the film so it's not just out of nowhere yes. yeah the drivers do a shockingly small amount of driving in this movie <laughs> which i found very funny <laughs> <laughs> their personality dynamic is set up here too in that they are argumentative with one another turk scott Kahn's character seems to be the bigger jerk of the two of them because in the midst of this race when the rc car uh is starting to outrun operated him operated by casey affleck turk just hangs a hard right and runs right. over the thing and smushes it into the ground <laughs> cackling the whole way which i feel like his brother should have seen coming. Yeah, that's a very oh, yeah. brother move. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly the older twin of the two. Yeah. We have Frank, we have our twins. Now we need somebody who's a little more tech minded. And that is in the person of Livingston Dell, played by Eddie Jemison. Livingston Dell is, I don't know, for the lack of a better way to say it, he's an electronics nerd. He's, yeah. he's the tech, he's the IT. Yeah. He's Radio Shack. Yeah. Radio Shack, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> it's like a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but worse for the environment. Worse for the environment. <laughs> Imagine an entire store of just that box of cables you keep under your desk, <laughs> just in case your flip phone ever comes back into style. Can I just take a minute and talk about Radio Shack? Because there's nothing like Radio Shack around anymore. No. Anytime I need a cable or something i can't just go to a place and there's a guy there and he says this one yeah you got to get it on amazon now and it'll probably be the wrong one i miss radio shack yeah Yeah. circuit city and circuit city stay tuned for season three of subgenre which will be uh (laughs) films that mention radio shack (laughs) pour one out for radio shack circuit city and And bernie Bernie mac And Carl Reiner. Anyway, mm-hmm. we meet Livingston Dell. Uh, Livingston has been doing some freelance work for the FBI, uh, listening in on mob figures, uh, which is where we find him sitting in a van, got his headphones on, the rest of it. looks very mash in this scene. Mm-hmm. I does. was going to say He's the same thing. He's got big radar energy. Yes, he does. And I, I wonder if it's on purpose, like if it's supposed to be a little homage. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I immediately thought that when I yeah. saw him, too. The hat, I mean, with the hat, mm. I can't imagine it's on accident. Well, and he's just got that little edge of neurosis yes. there, where it's yeah. just, yeah. For the kids out there, mash. It was a television program. It was like a newspaper. <laughs> but about the Korean War. <laughs> 
Josh Dassel is scheduling more and more China time to there. edit this yeah. episode <laughs> over the course. Every minute is adding an hour on editing this. This is going to be a series. This will never come out. Okay, so we got to round this team out. We got two more people, I think, to add to this, at least at this point. One of them is we need somebody to blow stuff up. We need a munitions guy that's going to help us get into the safe and uh, where we're going to find that guy. They had one guy in mind originally. They're sitting on the Santa Monica Pier talking about this guy. Turns out that guy's dead. So can't, <laughs> can't have get him. that guy. There is another guy you could get. His name is Basher. Basher, he would be great to have, but availability might be an issue because as we find out in the next scene, he's busy blowing open a different safe and getting caught doing it. Getting arrested for it. And so I guess the time has come to talk about Don Cheadle's accent. <laughs> Let's do Don that. Don Cheadle is an amazing actor. Amazing Mar- yes. an American actor. Like he is a fantastic <laughs> actor. And so the fact with that this got a. all the way to the end with this accent is, I feel so bad for him because <laughs> you know he's got to feel it's, not great. I want it. you to do, I want either you or somebody at this table that's not me to do, do or for Fabian to do accent. Don Cheadle as Basher Tar. It's basically, it's uh, Dick Van Dyke from yes. Mary Poppins. Yeah. Yes. Very Mary so. Poppins. Doing a lot of do- a talking, lot of like he, but occasionally he calls things bruv. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, governor. And um, he makes up some, some words that aren't, work, but it's not it's not real. We're in a rubble, you know, Barney Trouble. Barney, Barney Rubble. Rub- yeah, right, right. He claims he Actually, I think, went... I, I think we're doing a better job. <laughs> I think you're right. I think we're doing a better job than Don Cheadle. <laughs> I got my EMP. It fits in my van, but it takes out we the got, whole what, city. what do they call that? They... The Pinch. It's the pinch. A pinch. A pinch. We, we're gonna need a pinch. He claims Mary he went. He claims he went to England to study an accent Where? to do for this film. And what he I'm went think- to New England. <laughs> <laughs> If I had to guess, I would have guessed that Cheadle pitched Soderbergh on the accent, not the other way around. You think oh, so? Oh, um, yeah, maybe. I would think so. And But then on top of that, I felt like the text, you know, his dialogue as text felt super legit. It yes. felt like maybe they hired a savvy Londoner to punch up Basher's dialogue just for Cheadle. Mm-hmm. But it just was so underserved by his No, he can't deliver it. But so I had bad. the same thought as I was hearing it. And I'm like, I bet when they were hearing this in their mind while they were writing it, like, oh, this is going to be such a nice extra flavor to add to this and instead it's just hilariously bad (laughs) which he kind of nods to in you know not to talk about sequels but he nods to in one of the sequels where he's having to as basher the englishman put on an american accent and he's talking to someone about the importance of having a very believable accent (laughs) in order to pull things off can we can we quickly talk though about the continuity issue here because he's like yeah there's basher but could be an issue which implies that he's locked up that he's right. been I was arrested. just about to say that. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Him being mid-job How does that work? Yeah, right. right. Yeah, they're right. already having the conversation. I mean, maybe the only way you can explain it is like they know that Basher's planning a heist and he's indisposed and then they like show up to see how it's going to go down. Yeah. Why would you hire the guy to help you with your heist when you know he's about to get pinched for his? Yeah. yeah. You know who'd be great at this? The guy who just got caught. But then he <laughs> well, the also hasn't dead. been caught yet. Yeah, the other guy's dead. There's only two guys. <laughs> but I think, you know, continuity issues aside, Rusty does show up and gets Basher out of his situation by pretending to be a detective. An ATF agent. Right, mm-hmm. yes. And while he's <laughs> bending Cheadle over a car. Um, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you, you heard me. He slips him some stuff and says, what can yeah, you do does. with what I just slipped you? And Cheadle says, it's already done. 
and boom, blows up a cop car with, I don't know, he MacGyvers it. He MacGyvers a bomb on the fly and then they run away giggling, basically. To get the (laughs) cop to go away. This, I I love the moment where, you know, there's a cop that comes up and says, we caught this guy and he's like, oh, did did he use a mainline, (laughs) you know, back end, whatever thing. Yeah, that's, yeah. Right, exactly. And it tells him, go get Griggs for me. (laughs) Who's Griggs? Just get him. (laughs) Just find him, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Right. There are so many moments in this film, and they just keep coming, where if anyone reacted differently to one of these people in the pulling their schemes, the whole thing falls apart. Yes. yes. You know, it's like, oh, I need to go back and get my key card. Oh, I'll come with you. The whole thing's yes. ruined. Yes. Like, immediately. Exactly. It's all predicated on their genius knowledge of Yes, how everyone will react. Yes. So we've got Basher on board. We managed to get him out of his situation. Rusty does. He's on board. The last thing that they feel like they need at this point is what's called a grease man. Grease man is, a, we, we will find out, basically the person who is the physicality of the heist. They need somebody to slip into things, slip through things, climb things, whatever that may be. That's your grease man. And to go find a grease man, where do you go? Yeah, you go to the circus. What can I call this thing? Uh, uh, the Chinese circus, I guess. No, 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 but no as, as they're walking out, actually, it says Barnum on it. It's, oh, it's, okay. it's, it's oh is it supposed to be P.T. Barnum? So, so, yeah. so it's the Barnum Circus and the, the Chinese acrobat troupe that's doing it. They're yep. Rusty and uh, Danny are sitting in the audience. They're watching some things. Danny's not terribly kind of impressed. Yeah. Which is the one we want. Eventually, it becomes very very clear which one they're there to see because here goes this guy who we will later uh, come to call Yen, played by, and I'm going to butcher his name, but Xiaobo Qin, I think, Q-I-N, Qin. But he is a super excellent acrobat flipping from post to post and, and all kinds of good stuff. He's the guy that they want. And not only is he apparently great at what he does, he's willing to be a criminal. Yeah. Because that's more fun than the circus. Yeah, yeah exactly. pays better for sure. Yeah. Yes, less um, elephants. I, I said. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what you're well, stealing. Well, now hang Nick. on. <laughs> I said they only needed two more. They do mention another person here who they do go to get, who is uh, a gentleman named Saul. Better call Saul. For, yeah. better, better, we better, better call, call Saul. Saul. Mm. That's right. Saul has been around doing jobs with everybody. Knows Saul. He's been around forever and has been maybe out of the game for a bit. Retired. He's down in Key West or whatever, wherever it is, and he's got a problem with ulcers. So he spends his days not pulling jobs that cause him stress, but sitting at the dog track, and that's where uh, Rusty manages to find Yes, him. but who plays Saul? Um, Carl Reiner. Carl, Carl Reiner. Reiner, thank you. The late, great Carl Reiner. He had a great run, though. <laughs> he I really mean, did. Every time he popped up in something, he was great. Mm-hmm. And Carl Reiner goes back and forth in this film in two really distinct ways, which I love, and one of them is the very insecure, nervous, feel, yeah. nervous feeling like I'm too old, feeling like I'm too whatever, Saul, except for when the show lights come on yes. and he turns into the very confident, very assured, don't mess with me or I'll put you in your grave, Saul. Well, and there's this beautiful thing when Rusty shows up to recruit Saul at the racetrack and the dogs are, they've just started and Rusty observes that Saul's dog is running third place. Mm-hmm. It's like, your dog's not doing so well. He's running third. And Saul's like, he's got a burst at the end. Everybody knows this. And uh, what's the gig? So we see Pitt lean in and just murmur something. And as we see Saul reacting to whatever it is he's been told about what the job is, we see his dog like way in the lead just come barreling through the finish line. And he doesn't even give a shit anymore. He just drops all of his tickets as Pitt walks away because he realizes he's going to have to get over his ulcers real quick. (laughs) Does his dog win? Yeah. Well, it's implied that it's his dog in the front. I read a a different I did too. Really? I I saw that it was his dog dog in the lead. Hmm. Uh, I don't 
don't know. I, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the because it's me, not I, overt. I th- yeah, I thought that that was an observation on his astuteness that like people mm. underestimate him and the choices that he makes. But like he knows his dog's gonna win. You just have to hang in there to the end. Just have that a little tracks. faith. Yeah, well, I don't know. That that's how track. I always that does read track. it. Did you take it because I took it the other way, Fabian? As in this Florida thing isn't working out. Like oh, that the, could the, be it. The dog, the dog came in last, and so he's you know this is the it, better option as he has a plane ticket. Florida never really. Never really. (laughs) You've just alienated every Florida listener. You know, (laughs) 96% of subgenres listeners are in Florida. Not by choice. We skew 75. They understand that joke better than all of you, and I will repeat it again if necessary. For those of you in Florida, TikTok is a computer program full of dancing. If his dog were to have actually come in last, to me, it would play into this whole ulcer misdirection, which they handle so beautifully. He battles with this ulcer thing. And when you get to this pivotal moment later, which I'm sure we'll discuss, you think he's actually succumbing to the ulcers and that he's going to ruin the con. So this sort of like this idea that, you know, this is, uh, is it Saul? Yeah, Saul's sort of like second act, you know, is it going to crumble to pieces? Or And of course he does pull it through. That's an interesting yeah. observation. Mm. Yeah. All right, we got everybody on board, right? We got all the people that we need. We've got 10 people all together. Nice round number. Nice round number. And this group of 10 produces one of my, I got a lot of favorites in this, but another one of my favorite moments in this movie, which is Danny and Rusty sitting in a bar. Rusty, you know, maybe having had a little bit too much to drink, just sort of head down at the bar and, and resting Listlessly and thinking. Listlessly watching the yep. thing on the TV. Danny talking through, okay, we've got 10. 10 should be enough, right? And Rusty making no response through this entire... Doesn't even blink. Through this entire thing. Eyes on the TV. Causing Danny to rethink himself because there's no response. There's 10. That should be enough, right? You think we need another one? You think we need another one? <laughs> All right, we'll get one more. <laughs> But then, and that for me is a callback to yes. that very first scene when we meet the two of them together, which is they get each other. Yeah. Like they don't even need to, saying that they need to read each other's body language. There's no body language. There's no, no dialogue. There's nothing. The best romance oh. in this movie is not between George Clooney and Julia Roberts. No. It's between George Clooney and Brad Pitt. <laughs> like that is oh, yeah. the relationship yes. that yeah. it's like, it's more eventful, exciting, unpredictable. They've been through it all oh, together. Yes. They know each other. It's beautiful. And we'll definitely get into that in part two when Rusty picks him up at the jail um yes instead of, then reveals julia as like an add-on but <laughs> but i thought you were going to say it was a call back uh charlotte to the actual to the topher scene when brad pitt says nothing and topher convinces himself that he oh mm-hmm. yes cash yeah yes. It, he, he does it a few times where he by his silence he gets you to change your mind yes that's that's a real superpower. All right, they got to find an 11th. It's not Ocean's 11 unless you got 11. So who do we uh, need in order to make 11? We need somebody with quick hands. Fingers. And light fingers. And so they head to Chicago. We find Danny riding the L in Chicago and watching what seems to be a low-level pickpocket uh, played by Matt Damon lifting a wallet or something out of a, a guy on the subway. Yeah, and there's a weird directorial choice here where the whole thing is filmed with this weird like post 
production slow-mo to it. I was just about to, to say it. this. Yeah, I was like, it's like a, it's a very 90s. Whatever yes. this look is, this like stutter step digital slow motion that they've added. It's a strange choice and I don't know what it was supposed to do well, or Well, it's be. not the, it's just the first time in the film they introduce that because I think they do it a couple more times. Mm. They switch to, when they really want you to pay attention to something, they do suddenly a little like slow motion-y mm. focus thing. But yeah, maybe they, maybe they overthought that a little we bit. We get the freeze frame when he makes the lift out of the guy's right. pocket. Freeze. So you make sure yeah. that you see that. We get the freeze frame, but I know what you're saying about the the little, you know, it looks like the intro to like Caroline in the city or something. Yeah. You know, it's like a weird different I frame rate, like, different filter. Yeah. Maybe it was um, the cinematographer being influenced by something like Chunking Express, like a one car walk. It could um, be. Yeah. I or mean, Caroline or, in the city. Or Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> Valid. Or, Car- you know, yeah. Caroline in the city is like TikTok. <laughs> But it's worse for the planet. It's I worse mean, for the planet. As maybe you just sort of retcon this decision by saying that the eleventh guy here is sort of the improvised choice. He wasn't in the initial list, so he's mm-hmm. he's different. Right. Than the other ten, so they represent him differently, different cinematographical yeah. I mean, shorthand. I don't it know. It could also be like a way to look, make Chicago look different than right. oh, yeah. or Vegas, you, you yeah. know, or, or yeah. to cover up the fact that they're on a moving L and the camera's jerking all over the yeah. damn place, mm-hmm. or yeah. that the scene needed to be two minutes long and it was only a minute twenty. <laughs> like stretch it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Regardless of why, we see Matt Damon do his pickpocket thing. As he's leaving the train thinking he got away with it, Danny sneaks up behind him and we see him kind of do the bump up behind um, this character whose name is Linus Caldwell. We don't know exactly why yet, but we find out very soon because the next place we find Linus is walking into this kind of dive bar in Chicago. Well, hang on. This is no, 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 because there's a setup for that. Yes. So, and it's cool as hell. So Danny bumps into him as they're walking off the L. Danny doesn't say a word about it. He just walks off. Linus goes into his pocket to get his pilfered wallet and instead finds Danny Ocean's business card with on one side a handwritten note that says, like, nice lift, smiley face, and then just the name of the bar where yeah, he wants to. That's a power move. Right yeah, there. meet like, Linus. That business card is baller it's just a little card little gold uh inlay on the card and it just says in the most unobtrusive font ever just danny Danny ocean Ocean. classy i want business cards like this that are just my name have no information no way to contact you it's just (laughs) this is who i am so linus shows up at this bar danny's there waiting for him sits him down at the table and basically says look i got a job you're either in or you're out it's the first words out of his mouth you're you're in or you're out here is a plane ticket linus is like how do you know who i am right why do why me and danny says well we got a recommendation from whatever the guy is bobby caldwell bobby caldwell who ocean actually doesn't seem to realize is linus's father because uh, he says you got a really great recommendation from this guy and linus is like well dad's talk that way and ocean's surprised and linus says yeah dad we don't use the same last name because dad didn't want me trading on his name so we're supposed to understand that his father is also very good at this particular trade good enough that on his recommendation alone ocean was was here to pick this kid up and they had to put scott con in its place <laughs> Anyone who gets a job based on their father's name is a real piece of <laughs> shit. <laughs> so Danny kind of gives him the quick, like, here's the plane ticket. You're going to Vegas. This is the bit. Are you in or are you out? And then he looks to the side for just a second and says to an off-screen waitress, we'll take the check, please. And when he looks back, Linus has lifted the plane ticket and itinerary right from under Ocean's fingers. And Ocean says, that's the best pull I've seen you do yet. And with Linus signing up for this heist we are at oceans 11 in oceans 11 and we will talk more about that after this break 
Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. Hey, you're listening to Subgenre. I am here with Nick Heim. I am here with Alan Mall. I'm here with Fabian Marquez. And I am here with Charlotte Moore Lambert. And we're talking about Ocean's Eleven from 2001. And we're having whiskey. So when we last left off, we had assembled our crew of 11 people. And everyone has now made their way to Las Vegas, where we are going to pull off this heist. We're going to attempt to pull off this heist. Everyone is at Ruben's house, hanging out, getting to know each other a little awkwardly. Some of these people have met before, some of these people haven't. Danny lets everybody know up front, this is going to be highly lucrative, and it's going to be highly dangerous. So if uh, you want to get out, no hard feelings. Now is the time to do that. And everybody seems okay with it, except maybe one person. <laughs> Linus. Linus lingers, I think, sitting out on the diving board yeah. uh, thinking a, about it. This is a nice example of like the people that know the script and the one that needs to call line. And Because what happens here is like <laughs> everyone else gets like, yeah, it's time for us to go begin the plan. And Linus is kind of sitting there like a deer in headlights like, oh, should oh, I do this? I've got an option to opt out. I flew all the way here. I could just get free food and leave. leave? <laughs> and Ruben just kind of comes over to him and gently is just like, oh, hi, I know you. I know your dad. Yeah. How's Chicago? Yeah, how you doing? And then he's like, get your ass inside. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> the rest of the movie cannot continue unless you go in there. I just also, can I just make an observation about the food at this thing? There's definitely like edible arrangements there. Yes. Yeah, like this dude is true. full of money and he's got the trashiest looking spread out there. <laughs> this is why he has all that money. He's, he's not spending <laughs> it, it on only the food. cost him Nobody's... $7 in catering. Yeah. So they go inside. Inside is where we finally get a look at what is inside Dan. Danny Ocean's head. And this is courtesy of blueprints and a plan and other things that are visualized on a screen at the front of the room where he is talking to them about, okay, here is how this is going to work out. We're going to rob these three casinos. Are oh, you going to rob three casinos? Yes, we're going to rob three casinos. The bad news is that there are all of these obstacles between us and the money. Mm-hmm. And all of those obstacles individually are impossible. Right. And we're going to put them all together. Yeah, they do a good job of making it seem absolutely insurmountable to get in there. Mm-hmm. But I do have to say, where did they get this complicated 3D animation of the vault? There's like a one line thing there yeah. where he thanks. He's like, we've got this visualization courtesy of Bernie Mac's character. So Frank is also Frank a, is a 3D think. modeler. He's or was modeling it, wait, was it Frank? Who was it? 3D no, no, no. stuff. He's, Bernie's got skills. Well, yeah. no, because he's on the inside. Because he's he's yeah. working at the hotel Yeah, but then already. someone had to put this into 3D Studio Max and <laughs> <laughs> render out this video. Nick, yeah. Nick. Auto, this nerd auto, sh- 
is not necessary for Ocean's Eleven. This podcast should be called Nerd Shit. It's all necessary. That's my nerd show. But, um, you know, but again, I think this is, you know, we called out the point where Brad Pitt somehow presciently knows that Basher is going to be pinched, you know, at, at that flawed bomb thing that he was doing. Here's another point where we can completely disconnect and detach from the movie, but they do such a good job keeping us in that we just gloss right over it. Like any yeah. any little objectives that come up from your reptile brain are just suppressed by your visceral enjoyment. Suspend your disbelief and move on. Yeah, you have to. Another totally. little moment of glossing over, but it's, it's glossed over yes. to be funny, is in this same scene to where in the middle of all this explanation about what's going on, Yen chimes up in Chinese and yeah. says something that none of us as an audience know what he says and there is no subtitle and Rusty understands yes. Mandarin. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and just says, no, no, tunneling is out. I mean, yeah. it makes sense because the more languages you know, the more cons you can pull. This is true. And just to raise yeah. Terry Benedict, they name check that he speaks like four languages and he's right. learning Japanese. And he's learning Japanese. Okay. Which is a uh, callback, I think, to the movie Black Rain oh, that he was in right. uh, a decade earlier, potentially. The good news Okay, so we've set up the challenges. Here's all the stuff that we've got to get through in order to get into this vault. They all happen to share a vault. That's the good news. Bad news is you've got guard dogs and piranhas and lasers and whatever that are guarding this thing that we got to get through. The payoff, though, the significance of getting into this vault is that by law, I love how this is established, is that this is for certain there's going to be money there because by Nevada law, casinos have to have enough cash on hand to cover all their bets on the floor. And so on a regular day, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know what it was, 60, 60, million, 60 million. million. On a weekend, it's up to 80 or 85. On a fight night, which is the night two weeks from now that they are planning on doing it, it's a hundred and fifty million without breaking a sweat, yeah. and that's in two thousand one money. And that's in two thousand one. Hashtag inflation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume we are all being compensated similarly today. Yes. hundred and fifty million without breaking a sweat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'll get you that can, to you soon. Just I'll, as soon as we figure out how to get past the lasers and piranhas. Right. Okay. <laughs> The last word in this scene goes to Saul, who has been doing this for a long time, has been watching this presentation, and has one question. Let's say we can do all of these things that you say that are impossible, and we can get past the guards, and we can do the whole thing. How we get the money out? Are we just supposed to walk out the front door carrying $150 million? To which Danny answers, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which gives Saul... Oh, Oh. (laughs) okay. All right, then. Sure. Trust the process, Saul. It really is, yeah. And so... We have a plan, we have a team, everybody is on board, and all of us as an audience and a team understand what the stakes are and what the payoff is going to be. Now we get to the fun and games, which is we have to start working this plan and trying to put something together. And that comes in a few different steps, the first of which is reconnaissance. We have to figure out who is where and what and how we get there. This means dealers, this means cash carts, this means where the guards are. So Frank, who is our inside guy, our dealer, is uh, put to this job and is listening around for information. And he overhears, I think it's a technician, one of the technicians at the casino, talking about his love for one of the exotic dancers in town. Charmaine. Charmaine. That's their in. Uh, He thinks Charmaine likes him. So that uh, we know is going to be a weakness that we're going to lean on in just a second. And I do enjoy that because we're hacking at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's social engineering. 
the twins, right? Remember our Mormon twins. The twins are doing their job. I don't know why they have to have two of them doing it, but they have both of them clocking the time that a guard enters and exits this back room. So we know how often this guy's going to go in and when, which harkens back to the, the great, great train robbery. <laughs> the great train robbery where the uh, guard at the train key station is like takes the exact like 90 seconds to relieve himself every night down to a science. Going back to the scene where they're all grazing outside and one of the twins, I, th- I can't remember now, I think it's Casey Affleck's character and Saul are standing there talking awkwardly and the twin is like, you know, uh, you should come out to Provo. I think you'd really like it. You'd do really well there. And Saul's like, I'll check it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's the worst small talk. And these dudes think they're like the kings of Utah or something. Like (laughs) it is setting up that the twins are terrible at like small talk and banter, which will which will show up in a scene later. Yeah. So reconnaissance we've got. We've got Frank and the twins on that. The next thing we need is power. And uh, that's Basher's job. Basher starts his whole, like, checking out the whole power situation by doing something which I, it's so obvious that maybe you could do it, which is just he walks out in the middle of Las Vegas Boulevard, sets out four cones, and climbs down into a manhole. Yeah. Like you do. Like you do. Just be bold. He sells it. The power he like of- does this thing where he waves, he waves cars past him and props up the cones. Yeah, he's got the little care. cones. He's got his little. I mean, in, cones. in Ghostbusters too, at least they put on the fake uniforms with the hard That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But I mean, honestly, yeah. like if you saw a guy put up some cones and go into a manhole, even if you thought he had nefarious reasons, would you intervene? No. Nah. What true. would you say to that? You'd be, oh, cones are official. They're oh, orange. I, I will confess that when I see a parking space that I think is available and there's a traffic cone sitting in it, I always think to myself, "Gosh." <laughs> I can't move that cone. <laughs> it's there for a reason. Foiled again. I know it's not a handicap sign. It's a cone, but it's... I, it's a cone. Obey I, the cone. I, I, I do obey the cone. Yeah, I'm very far it. away instead of take, moving this, the cone. This cone thing with Basher was way more plausible than his accent. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a cone, no, not I? <laughs> it's a cone, in it? It's a cone, in it? <laughs> task number three. We've done reconnaissance. We've done power. Now our third task is surveillance. We have to figure out a way to tap into the system that they have in-house at the casino. And this is Livingston sort of wondering out loud, you know, what resources do we have to do this? Well, in uh, task number one, Frank had overheard this guard saying that he had a soft spot for Charmaine the dancer. And they put that to work here in task three and get Charmaine, at the time she's giving a lap dance, I think, to our uh, guy in the club, slips his, was it slips his badge off of his shirt? His key card. Slips his key card off and hands it to Rusty outside the club. Yeah, and a nice nod, like the guy that has a cross on Charmaine mentions that she's stripping to pay her way through med school, and she is stripping as a nurse at the club. Oh, I I missed that. So it's a little bit of practice for her future career. I hope she went on to do great things. And there's a great bit where she passes off the key card to Brad Pitt, and he's like, thanks, Charmaine say hi to your mom for me. <laughs> and she's like, say hi to yourself. She'll be on in five minutes. <laughs> he kind of thinks about it for a minute. And yep. then he's like, nah. nah. <laughs> but it's that same thing as like when we started the movie where you just get like little bits of color on the edges yes. to help fill little in the world. character yeah. development. And after having gotten the key card, the additional bit of surveillance here is kind of testing like the velociraptors, sort of testing the weaknesses of the fence. And <laughs> yes. so this is where you bring the, the twins back playing one of them playing a balloon delivery salesman this is okay (laughs) this moment i get it and it's silly and it's funny 
this to me is almost one of the worst parts of the movie. It is, does go on for a long time. Yes. <laughs> He's the balloon boy. Yeah. And let's go of his balloons in the exact right place to cover the security camera. And there's this whole thing about, you know, get your balloons out of here. But, oh man, it's bad. But I think what it does is it sets up what we then have for a while in the movie, which is basically a series of mini heists. Yes. Right. Like ah. you, you have all these little mini side quests on the way to the main heist to make sure the audience is interested and as excited as possible because, oh, well, now they have to do the balloons. Oh, here goes the guy to tap into the video. Here comes the doctor. You know, all the little bits are almost their own little side adventures. Well, and I think it's a good way of reinforcing that every character in this film has kind of a superpower. And these two's superpower is, in fact, being annoying. Yes. And they're so good at bickering that they manage to keep the security guard away from his post for a good couple of minutes, just trying to figure out how to separate them while they're having their brotherly spat. Yes. Over the balloons. Balloon boy. You're a balloon boy. It's obnoxious, (laughs) but we're supposed to be annoyed. Speaking of side quests, everyone gets one, pretty much. And Livingston's side quest is to go and tap into, physically, manually, tap into the servers and the security systems that are in this back hallway, back room of the casino. He goes to do that by essentially drawing a Zelda map on on his <laughs> yes. hand. The palm of his hand. And Not trying to find back. his way back. Not even the back. No, no, no. Right on the palm of his hand in ink and following it back to the room where he needs to do, which he does successfully and taps in. But then there's a problem. He's a sweaty man. Well, and also, I'm no IT tech, but I don't know if putting a little thing on an Ethernet cable is going to give you a video feed on an FM TV transmitter. You're right, Nick. You're not an IT tech. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but what I love about this is Livingston is is supposed to be one of the more intellectual guys because he knows electronics and things, but has the worst preparation getting into this. Like, doesn't even bother to, like, write it on a piece of paper, but... And he doesn't have to go that far. Like, did he have to do a... It's just a couple turns down the hall. But his problem is server rooms get hot. Yep. He gets a little sweaty. Yep. And he's apparently a wrist sweater because his hand and his map gets all damp and he can't read any And he, like, well, he rubs his forehead. Oh, that's right. He rubs his face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the next thing that we see of him is him trying to escape this place as quick as he can only to look down at his hand and realize that the map has been smeared all over mm-hmm. the, the front of his face yep. and that he is being pursued very quickly by one of the guards who is saying, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir. And he gets to the door and almost escapes when the guard catches him. But the guard is only there to return the little his monitor, monitor his that little he left. Monitor. Mm-hmm. He says has a reception on these things. He thinks he's got like a little TV. Mm-hmm. This is the worst security for a casino so yeah. ever. But it's interesting because at this moment, Danny and Rusty are watching. They can see him being pursued by the security guard, but there's nothing that they can do. They can't clue him in. They can't intervene. And as he manages to get his little monitor back and leave without incident, they exhale and lean back, realizing that it all could have gone to shit right before it even started. Mm -hmm. Fourth task on this list is going to be construction. To practice, ostensibly, they have to build a exact working replica of the (laughs) vault, of the casino vault that they are going to be breaking into. like they've got like an air hanger somewhere. Yes. So like, How are... much did this cost? This is what I this is what I was thinking about watching this is just like I get the allure of 150 million dollars. That's a lot of money to pretty much anyone on the planet, yeah. even if you are a billionaire. But like, how much are they starting with yeah. to yeah. be able to do? It's like yeah, it's like Ruben's got this mansion using edible arrangements for food, so yeah. perhaps sure, not all the money, money he would there, want. Yeah. Right? But, 
Yeah, there's an airplane hangar that can build the exact replica of the and vault well, like, to practice in. How do you get those parts without raising flags? Yeah. Like, there's no way you don't get on the radar of national security. It's when- pre-9-11. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I mean, even <laughs> down to like which, which of the four rolly cart slots the cart is going to go into. Like, that's, yeah. that's recon. I don't think you could actually ever get I, it. Like, they I say agree. that the safe is the most sophisticated safe ever built. And they just build, build it, it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they do indeed build it yeah. themselves. If I not, now, if I had not been watching this for the purpose of discussing it, I don't know that I would have thought about it too much. Like the first time I watched it, I just kind of breezed past it. Like, right. oh, that's an interesting. Yeah, okay, thing. they did that. Yeah. Well, that scene is very quick intentionally. Of all of the parts of this, you know, six-step process or whatever that it's going to be, the construction bit, we get thirty seconds and they're gone. Yeah. And they do that intentionally for one reason, but they also do it intentionally. I think, like you said just to sort of let's just gloss past the fact that we have to build this thing i sort of envision it as you know they managed to get the plans right with the full 3d rendering or whatever from wherever they got them so they're not necessarily sourcing exactly the things that they're built with these are these are facades that they're building right, right? they're okay. building what it looks yeah. but like then it versus does what look it is exactly the that's same. correct like, yeah. it's just the clearly the same set <laughs> but you know it's not as though the production team actually built a working high security safe right, right. like that's just built out of good analogs so maybe our crew here just did that they hired a good production designer It's like it's real metal and stuff. Painted like. foam. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they build this replica of the vault. The next thing they need is intelligence to fill this out. And so Linus is sent to keep a watch on Benedict. Yes. Right? He's the wild card here, really. We can tap into other things. We can sort of follow guards and whatever. Benedict is the thing we really got to keep our eye on because he's the guy that can really, really foil this plan. And so Linus is put on his tail, watches him every moment of every day. We gloss over that for a moment and we'll come back to it. The last task on the list, the sixth task is transport. We got to have a way to get gone and get there. And so this is where Bernie Mac is given his moment, one of two big moments in the movie to be Bernie Mac. And he's going to negotiate for Vans. (laughs) See, this one didn't land for me. I liked his second moment much better. This one felt like as I'm watching it, I'm like, why is this scene in the movie? But I understand why it's in there is because you want Bernie Mac being funny and, you know, entertaining, which he is. And I think it shows that that character is good at assuming different characters. Okay, he's the blackjack guy, but then he also goes in and is playing this sort of, you know, affable, dubious businessman type who is at the same time like a big guy. And he pulls that charisma off very well with this guy who he thinks is about to stiff him on van sales. With just enough menace that the guy is intimidated. I think it was the casting of the van dealer that made this not work for me that well because I'm just like Bernie Mac is big and it's obviously projecting like some fear at him but the guy doesn't seem like a shrimp like I mean like I didn't get why he was like oh yeah sure we'll give you the exact deal that you've grabbed my hand. (laughs) here's, Here's where I took it. I may be wrong here and correct me. The guy that's the van salesman feels very Texas to me. He feels very Southwest. Mm -hmm. Bernie Mac is, yes, a bigger guy. And I've read and have heard people talk about, you know, he's squeezing the guy's hand or whatever. Early on in watching this, I didn't read it that way. I read it as he just kept holding his hand and it was a race thing. It was the guy was uncomfortable to have his hand held for that long. And then Bernie Mac adds the squeeze or whatever at the end of it. But it's just a long, uncomfortable discussion about hand moisturizer. Yeah, I think Bernie, in in addition to 
physically intimidating him by squeezing the shit out of his hand. He starts giving this guy all these stupid little details about moisturizing. And my sister moisturizes like this, and I don't like this particular kind of ingredient, blah, blah, blah. And I think the guy just wants to get rid of him. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if I give you a deal on this, will you go away? Oh, basically. Yeah. It felt like a coded message. And I, I don't know that it was properly set up for it to win for me or to, or to play. On one hand, it did feel like a racial thing and it also like an intimidation thing, but I didn't feel like it was successful. Like I felt yeah. like I was missing some setup. Yeah, it feels a little shoehorned in there. And the entire mm-hmm. time this is going on, by the way, the twins are out standing on the back of one of these bouncing vans, bouncing <laughs> up and down to check the shocks or whatever. It's just, I think it's just because they're annoying. I think that's so. just what they do. I think that's, that's exactly right. While all of this is going on, Saul is getting ready for his part. And that means that he is getting fitted for a suit um, at Silk. a tailor shop. Silk suit. Yep. Yeah, imported silk. He's been nervous this whole movie. This is no exception to that. He's very nervous, which leads Danny to ask the question, Saul, are you sure you're good for this? Do you <laughs> sure you can do this? And this turns on the other Saul and basically he says, says, if you ever ask me that again, I'll kill you, basically. <laughs> you won't wake up the next day. And he's practicing being... Sirga. Right. He's practicing an accent. He's working his way into a character and changing from Saul into Lyman Zerger. Lyman Zerger. <laughs> Oh yeah, he does. He lowers his voice and tries to be Better accent, better accent than Cheadle's. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought his accent was really good. Slime and Zerga, isn't it? (laughs) Tuesday. 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 The reason that he is becoming Lyman Zerger is because the character of Lyman Zerger is a high Zerga. roller. Zerga, I'm sorry. Zerga. Is a high roller. He is a, what you call a whale in Las Vegas parlance. He's the guy that walks into the casino and drops a lot of money and funds the casino for the next couple of months. Right. And so he enters the Bellagio posing as this guy, sits down at a baccarat table. His bets get the attention of... The floor uh, uh, right, uh, the, uh, right, of the floor manager who tells Benedict, hey, look, there's this guy over here. He's placing a lot of big bets. Who is this guy? His well, name. and so he says. So what he says is that he's some sort of European arms dealer yeah. of some of some kind. And Benedict is like, I've never heard of him. And his manager's like, That's why I believe him because if no legit arms dealer would be on the ra- the radar. Mm-hmm. And this is the point in a modern film where they would have to pull some sort of internet based. Yeah, there's no way they can do a background check to like hide his identity online. <laughs> right. Oh, there was a website where I could type in your name right. to find out if you're actually <laughs> yeah, famous. That's not. Yeah, that's absolutely not a thing. So, and it all it all seems to check out like. He's got the accent. He's got the physical presence. He's got the money. He's doing great. And so he establishes the character for Benedict. Benedict, you can tell, is still a little uncertain about this guy, but it's fine. It's not doing anything that's going to go too far on the radar. Rusty is also in the casino with Linus. Linus is filling Rusty in about Benedict's habits, right? So Benedict, every day, is like a machine. He First, he comes down and he checks the numbers, and then he goes to this place and he comes over here, and then he all of these things happen every single day. They only have two weeks to pull this heist, and so I'm not sure how many days he's been following him. I think at this point, we assume that about a week has elapsed. I mean, they're getting close to the actual day, but they're still in the midst of everything. As Linus is telling Rusty about what Benedict does for his day, he always ends his day the same way, which is he goes to the restaurant. And why does he go to the restaurant? To meet his His girl, girl, who at this point, you know, Rusty doesn't know who the girl is. Linus has only seen the woman, doesn't know what her name is, but says she comes down the stairs every day at, you know, X o'clock. And this is the best part of my day and on cue here comes julia roberts <sighs> coming down about julia just have a moment of silence for julia roberts She's still alive, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Pour one out for Julia so, Roberts. But her cheekbones are just as sharp so as they've good. always been. <laughs> the only so this is the notable, payoff, right? This is this is the payoff. This is the payoff to the um, to the parole meeting he has in the very first scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mentions his wife. 
this is now we finally get to see the person. Although we don't we don't know yet. That right. This is, well, Linus this is. Linus doesn't know who she is. Doesn't even know her name. And Rusty knows her name and knows exactly who she is. And now he knows why the f- we're here. And mm-hmm. now he kn- and now he knows why we're here. And we sort of get let in. At least on the name part, we get let the audience gets let in. But you can tell Tess. that Rusty, her yeah, name Tess. Is Tess, yes, Tess, and Rusty is not happy that it's Tess at all. And so we then our next scene, I think, is at the hangar. It is, and they've put together the big safe, the, the whatever the, the vault. vault. Yeah, they hired the production crew right. to build the yeah. The, there's some more edible arrangements. Yes. <laughs> and are practicing, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. Is this where the uh, where yeah. Yen is going through the paces of what it would take to I think they're about to, thing? but to Pitt, Pitt storms in and tells Clooney, like, I need to talk to you. Right. Right now. Mm-hmm. And says, is this about Tess? And he's like, no. <laughs> it's not totally about Tess. Because what we learned, yeah, is that... I know. picked my ex-wife's new guy by accident <laughs> yeah. as the guy to rob. And uh-huh. it's completely a coincidence. And he says, you know what I was saying about how sometimes the, the house, if you play too long, the house takes you, well, something got taken. Yeah, I me. lost something. I lost something yeah. and I want to get it back. And Rusty points out, <laughs> you know, when push comes to shove... Are you going to pick her or are you going to pick the money? And may I remind you, she does not split 11 ways. (laughs) An excellent line. Every time he says that, I'm like, give her a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Then we'd pour one out for Julia. (laughs) (laughs) To which Danny's response is, if everything goes to plan, I won't have to make that choice. Right. Implying that someone else will. We don't quite know who that someone else is going to be at this point, but we have a good idea. Mm -hmm. So in the next scene, we reveal that Tess is an art lover. She is actually an art curator curator because she's reviewing a Picasso. You know one of those. Yeah. I do know one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Make sure you listen to the Art Curious podcast, also <laughs> produced by Kabuki. Please where, buy the book. Where can I listen to it, Josh? You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere that you download your podcast. When Beautiful. Josh robs a casino, you'll know who it's really for. <laughs> <laughs> Tess is reviewing a Picasso with Benedict, and you can tell that Tess appreciates the Picasso. Benedict is there because she's there, not necessarily because of the Picasso. She tries to, as one does with her significant other, give him a kiss. He pulls away and reminds her, in my hotel, someone is always watching watching remember that points at the security camera. points at the security camera that's yeah. right I, I wasn't sure what the implication was here there was that were they hiding their relationship or was it that he just didn't want to have anyone know what was going on so in his personal life i think I was, part of it is a way of protecting tess I mean, not necessarily because he loves her, but because she belongs to him. And if anybody were to want to use her as a hostage sort of, you know, use, hold her over him, you know, then yeah. Yeah. he doesn't want to have a clear tie to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also because he's a man who's very much in control of his life and his world. And to be seen displaying affection would not be in character with his sense of like propriety. Attracts him. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, from a scripting standpoint, it's brilliant because it does two things, right? It smacks of a kept woman or mm-hmm. of infidelity. Like it's something that's hidden. I like right? you, he but I don't want to be seen with you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then it also reminds us of the stakes. Someone's always watching. So we're again reminded of the stakes for our heroes. Right. And they have to set that up also for the end of Tessa's character. That line plays very big in the end there. I think the other thing is this is his hotel. His employees are watching. His people are watching. And it's a vulnerability. And he is not a man who wants people to know his vulnerabilities. My immediate reading of it was that he was married and that he didn't want the information to get out. But then nothing in the rest of the film followed up on that. So I kind of dropped that idea. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, he had actually built like, an exact like replica that. of his wife. <laughs> In an airplane. <laughs> While this is uh, going on, or, or shortly thereafter, between the time that Benedict is with Tess and is meeting her at the restaurant, Zerger, Saul as Zerger, pulls Benedict aside and says, hey, I've got this thing. I got some stuff coming in. In a briefcase, it's very, how do you say it? Very important. Too. Very important, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and says, I'd like to have it safely there. Benedict offers the least he can offer, which is, I'll have them put it in the house safe. No, 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 no. This is bigger than the house safe. And, and you will be well compensated mm-hmm. right. for your generosity. That's right. And this really is where we see the plan start to come together for the first time, right? Like, this is where it, it really kicks off. So we don't know what this is yet. We, yeah. It's hinted that it's a briefcase. It's hinted that it's something very important and that it needs to be secured in the safe. And so we do know that whatever's going to happen in that safe is reliant upon this moment. And through being Saul, through being Zerga, manages to get Andy Garcia to go along with this, although reluctantly. Because Garcia at this point doesn't know. This guy could be an arms dealer right. that's got tons yeah. of money. And he's honestly not that interested. He's about to brush Zerga off until the possibility of compensation is raised. Right. But then he's interested. Okay, so fine, Mr. Zergo, we will do that. Okay, great, Mr. Benedict, thank you. Terry is off now to go to dinner. And while he is en route to dinner to get to the restaurant, George Clooney beats him there. And Tess thinks, you know, Tess gets touched on the back of the shoulder, thinks that it is going to be Benedict, and it turns out that it's Danny. Yeah, and this seems like, oh, he just messed up the whole plan, right? Like this whole scene, you're like, oh, he's going to bring this whole thing crashing down. This is one of those scenes at work when you rewatch the film. The scene hits totally differently yes, when absolutely. you know what what's what the wheels within the wheels are. It's so great because it plays two ways, right? Like you think that Danny intentionally had Saul do this so that he could also have a stolen moment with Tess. Mm. So the wheel within the wheel of, of Danny's sort of like uber game, his game within a game, it, it just makes him seem like such a clever mastermind. And Danny takes the moment to tell Tess flat out, I came here for you. Yeah. Mm. And it's strange on the first watch because it seems like... Danny has been so precise up to this moment in the plan and he's suddenly going off book, he's going rogue and it's a big risk. It's really stupid because you know that any second... Benedict's going to show up. Right. And in in your mind as the viewer, you think, well, if Benedict sees him, this whole thing's screwed, right? Yeah. And obviously we learn later that's not the case, but it, it's a great misdirect, I think. Yeah. They have what amounts to a, you know, a very quiet argument, but they have an, an argument there for a minute. So good. Where he's, he's asking her, you know, why are you with this guy? Like, does he make you laugh? Mm-hmm. He doesn't make me cry. He doesn't yeah. make me cry. But also I will Great say, line. I'm with Terry now. I hate that line. It's a hard line to say I and sound cool. I hate that line. Ugh. I'm with Terry I'm with <laughs> I'm with Terry now. And like, okay, Julia Roberts sells it about as well as you can, but. Although. So you all know my middle name is Terry, right? Because that's just, that cuts uh, deep every time you make fun of it. Alan Terry. Maul. Alan Terry. This scene kind of bugs me because it's like Julia Roberts' character, I think it glides and coasts a lot on her star power and charm and beauty. But like her character annoys me because she's stuck in this play, the exact same place. And just you're supposed to believe that she is so in love with Danny that she still would go off with him after he pulls off this heist. 
even though he has been a bastard up to this point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, like, she's she's less of a character and more of a piece on the board. Yes. I think. yes. But I think that's yeah. in keeping with the way women in this movie are treated in general. Yes. Which it's is just a, a, the big critique I have rewatching she's, this. She's yeah. characterized as a woman who likes bad men. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even though she's got her own dignity and her own self-respect and her own career and she's got all of these wonderful things going for her, at the end of the day, she likes the bad boy and mm-hmm. she can't help, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, well, I'm you had bad to bring Julia Roberts in to do this, yeah. you know? Well, and I think you have to almost because Julia Roberts brings so much with her yeah. that she makes a character out of nothing yeah. just by being Julia Roberts. And, and anyone else, you'd just be like, this is barely a person. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, because yeah, Tess is barely a person. Mm-hmm. I will say Danny does a very cool drink order here where he says, I'll have a whiskey <laughs> and he holds his fingers up wide and a whiskey and makes a smaller <laughs> a one. one. I order that to this day <laughs> when I go to restaurants. I swear to you. you want a and do they always say the same thing? Whiskey and a whiskey. What kind of whiskey, dumbass? <laughs> <laughs> they don't even cut away to the waiter, but they stay on Clooney the whole time and he and he smiles to the off-screen character. Yeah. It just sells oh, it I mean, so well. I mean, he's cool as in this. Yes. Yes. Like, he's, <laughs> but yes. this moment, I agree, like somehow it's deeply flawed, but at the same time, they're showing their tells. Later in the scene when Benedict joins them, they overtly mention Casablanca. And there's something prior to that that d- it does smack of Bogart and Bergman yeah, a little definitely. bit in Casablanca with the quick, witty repartee. Uh, you know, we already mentioned the one scene of, you know, he doesn't make me cry, which is a great exchange. And one of my favorite quotes of the movie amongst many, for some reason, I love the part where she says, I don't have a husband or didn't you get, you get the papers? And he says, my last day inside. And then she says, I told you I'd write. (laughs) I just, I love that gag. It just plays so well. And they let it play. They let it breathe. And they just knew what they were doing, even though I completely agree. Poor Tess is a paper thin character. Same scene, same moment. You get one of the other great lines, which is they say, I paid my debt to society to which she answers funny. I didn't get a check. check. Oh, so good. There is a lot of really tight writing. No, it's all very snappy. Yeah. Yeah. It does a great job of building her resentment of him, but there's still clearly chemistry there. She does not talk that way with Terry. No, with <laughs> no. Terry. She's, <laughs> she's very deferential to him. This is his moment to show up because yes. he walks in right in the middle of this thing to which Danny calmly says, oh, I'm in your chair. Right. Yeah. Stands up, lets him sit down and we get what to me is in equal parts incredibly smooth and incredibly awkward because you have Benedict holding Tess's hand, looking directly sort of in her eyes. playing with her fingers. It's this intimate, like, showing her, brandishing her. Kissing her hand. Yeah. Never acknowledging Danny with his eyes. But, but the blocking of the scene is that Danny is standing, so he is looming over him, but he's deliberately ignoring him. It's a great little power. Power mm-hmm. struggle, yeah. yes. Um, Tess barely looks at him. And then you were talking earlier about how there's the script of the con men and how they all understand how these little things are supposed to play out and then there's this other script of social propriety in which benedict says stay have a drink with us which nobody wants no they all are miserable if they're all in the same place and you know at immediately both danny and tess are like no can't stay (laughs) i can't he can't (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's like you have to offer and also maybe if he does stay that's an opportunity for me to fuck with him more yeah. you know because it seems like he would be at a disadvantage if Danny was to stay took him up on it get, yeah and they both get defensive like they don't want that so he's but it's constantly bluff. calling bluffs it's just yeah. another bluff um, it's amazing but it also gives Benedict's character a chance to stand toe to toe with Danny and you see like this is an intimidating rival to have as the guy you're trying to steal from like he is not flustered by you or your moves at all yeah in terms of staging the in blocking the change of power positions so on the one hand Danny defers or demurs and gives him his seat but that then puts Danny in a standing position so he's he's lording literally standing above Terry meanwhile Terry seems to have all the power even though he's below you know, physically below him. Only by virtue of it. not making icon, just simply pretending that despite this person looming over him, he simply is not there or is not important enough to acknowledge. And the mm-hmm. dismissal at the end of that scene is one of my favorite things too, where they just say each other's names. Terry? Danny. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and then he even says- Can that says, be how we end the podcast? <laughs> and well, and he says, Danny says to Tess, it was nice seeing you. And she says, take care. Like she does not say it was nice seeing you. Mm-hmm. It is from this interaction between them where we've sort of set up so the the main guys have met each other and we've set up what they're fighting over, which is Tess and the casino. Just because women, by the way, they're also things that you just That's exchange. Right. That's they're correct. just they're just a thing Heard to fight this. over. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, commodification. Yeah. That's what we're here of for. Women, yes. yes. In the next scene, we actually get move into a montage from this, showing us a playing out of what had been set up much earlier in the movie when we went to our money man to fund this thing. And he talked about how Benedict was going to torpedo his casino, right? Yeah, this whole hotel destruction sequence is a good one. And I noticed it shows up at several points in the movie, but the color correction of the film, I think purposefully evokes the 60s. Like it has that kind of slightly more washed out old film feel. And this scene in particular has that kind of cranked up some. And it's it's just a a good scene. And there's there's almost no dialogue in it at all. You get to see it from two different angles, Mm -hmm. which is actually really fun. One of them is we start with Basher who is in the hotel suite sort of overlooking Vegas. And Basher is crafting fake gems, it looks like, yeah. right? So he's mm-hmm. he's using his little uh, Dremel or whatever to uh, make fake gems. Unbeknownst to him, outside the window, which we cut to down at ground level, here is Benedict on a stage, you know, big pomp and circumstance, alongside Ruben, who's there. And Elliot Gould has something I've never seen before, a cigar holder for like a Churchill-sized cigar. <laughs> like, it's not like a black and mild. It's like a big old cigar, but it has a plastic <laughs> holder on the end like he's from Sunset Boulevard. Like, it's it's crazy looking. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and they are there to blow up his hotel. Yeah. Yes. That's the thing. Yeah. And so he's on stage with Benedict. They're waiting to, you know, blow this thing up. Standing in the audience watching this is Danny. Standing behind Danny, unbeknownst to Danny, theoretically, is Linus Linus watching Danny. And Danny is watching Tess. And at the moment where everything is going to happen, the entire crowd turns around to watch the explosion, except for Danny and for Linus. It's a great shot, yeah. Danny only has eyes for Tess. And boom. Here goes the destruction of the casino. It's imploded. It falls to the ground, I and would you imagine. you do not hear it at all. You see it happen both in the background of and on the television of the screen that mm. Basher has on in his Which flashes, room. right? Like the power it flashes. flashes yeah. and, and, but you don't hear the sound of the building falling at all. That's a big explosion, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> in it. 
Oh, I'm an actual was, Brit. Chila's <laughs> best scene was, was having it play out over his shoulder. Yeah, he has no idea really that it's just yeah that it's just happened behind. He's him. watching it on TV, even though it's he's right watching it on next TV. To him. He's watching it on TV. Yep. The team is laying out how they're going to take the casino for all of their money. Rusty is laying out the kind of TikTok of the plan. This is going to happen first. Then this is going to happen second. This is going to happen third. TikTok. What is, is a TikTok? <laughs> it was, it's it's like of... a newspaper. Oh right. But it's worse. But it's worse for the they're making use of this model of the vault that they have created at this moment now to test Yen and to show kind of what the grease man is going to do. And so Yen's job is to be put down into one of these little cash carts or chip carts or whatever they are and be rolled into the vault. And they put him in in the most uncomfortable position you could ever be in. Like taco shell style. Yeah, they just fold him in half. Like he couldn't crouch in there. The floor is uh, theoretically has lasers on it. You know, we've got little lights going back and forth. The floor is lava. And so he can't get onto that, but he manages to get himself out of the cart. They take bets on whether or not he's going to be able to flip from the cart over to, you know, the other place where he's got to, to be or whether he's going to short it. And he, of course, does fine. I don't know why he has to do a backflip instead of just jumping over there. But that thought crossed my mind it, every time. It, did a it looks cool, though. Yeah. yeah, it definitely looks cool. It is after the success of seeing that Yen is going to be able to do his job that we see kind of why Basher was so upset at the end of the scene where we saw him last. He shows up covered in sewage, having a bit noticed. of a stank in it. <laughs> having noticed something uh, underground. In the course of blowing up the hotel, I think, and am I right about this? In the course of blowing up the hotel, they tripped something, they did something bad to the power or whatever, and have gone and are fixing it now. And that was the thing that he was going to exploit in the first place. I just found the dialogue from that scene. Can I do it? Please. please. Okay, so they're they're asking him what happens. And I don't know if this is the final script or not, but it's close enough. Um, so he says, yeah, we're in deep sh- that poxy demo crew didn't back the main line. They nosed up the mainframe, nosed it right up. And then they're like, what? You understand him? I'll explain later. They're so pony, they blew the backup grids one by one. Basher, what happened? They did what I would have done, but by accident. Now they know their weakness, they're fixing it. So unless we tend to do this job in Reno, we're in Barney. Huh? Barney Rubble. Trouble! <laughs> man, this is an authentic cocky <laughs> man I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> it's so uh, much better than Cheadle. They yes. tried. They tried. Just be a guy. <laughs> like like Don, way, Don Cheadle, you're enough. You're enough on your own. Yes. He is so uh, enough. He and Robert in this movie both deserved better. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. He can't do what he wants to do. They have nosed it right they up. They have it right up. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Okay, well, you can't do the thing you were going to do. You need something that's going to be able to take care of the power situation. And it's right at that second, <gasps> covered in sewage, that he realizes that they could use a pinch. A pinch. What's a pinch? Well, what is a pinch? Oh, wait. What is a pinch? A, a pinch is, he explains, it's a, it's an electromagnetic pulse. It's basically like a nuclear bomb without the bomb, is the way he explains it. Yes. So what it does is it creates a wave that's a power fluctuation that could kill power in its radius for roughly 30 seconds. Basically all they need. Just uh, an EMP. It's just an EMP, but there's only one in the world that's big enough to knock out Vegas, and they have to go get it in what is another, you know, caper. Caper, yeah, caper within a caper. They're 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 having to do another heist. The California, what is it? California Institute of Advanced Science, which is it's Caltech. Yeah, it's it's Caltech. And and where they just build, you know, giant devices that could cripple a city and leave them in a working (laughs) working devices. Oh, we've got Put our nuclear bombs in this room, and we've got the EMPs over here, <laughs> and the 
the gas related <laughs> bombs and, in this room. And what I love is when they go to get the thing. Granted, the cut, the edit doesn't show exactly how much time has elapsed, but it can't be that long. It's like five guys pop into the building. Yeah. And then a few minutes, they wheel this thing and out. And it just is ready to go. And then you just load it up. Yeah, what was it, it the there van. for? What were they going <laughs> to use it for? What were they doing with it? Was it a class project? It'd be like somebody needs to make a movie where they hijack CERN. And they just like... <laughs> this wheel CERN. <laughs> <laughs> put it in the back of their truck. <laughs> we need to put this large Adwan collider. <laughs> <laughs> smash an atom. <laughs> yeah. They could do this in four or five seconds, and they do. The problem is that Danny has told Linus to stay in the van with the twins. Which the is twins, not right. No, the twins are insufferable. Danny can't last but a couple of minutes <laughs> while these Linus. guys are... Linus, sorry. Right. Linus can't last but a couple of seconds and heads his way in the front door of the building right at the exact second that everybody else is coming out. Yeah. What I love about this scene is we talk about like, oh, smartphones would have changed this movie in so many ways. This is the scene where I'm like, oh, if this was done in 2021, he would have just gotten his phone out and be looking at Twitter or something. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's what people do now when they're bored. If you want yeah. to people watch, they're all looking at their phones. Twitter is like TikTok from five years ago. <laughs> but it's worse for Elon Musk. It's worse for Elon Musk. <laughs> for that reason, we give it a thumbs up. <laughs> They come out, he goes in, they start to drive off, not realizing that he's not still in the van, and get a few feet away, realize that Linus is not in the van, look back up at the building, Linus is being chased now by the two security guards that happen to be in the building, not guarding the pinch that can destroy a city. And they're not going to go back and rescue him because they don't want to all get caught, but they also don't drive away. They just, like, watch Uh to see what happens. They watch. Linus manages to break out a window, gets on top of some sort of awning, and they back the truck up. Linus is able to jump down on the truck. Very awkwardly. Yeah, very awkwardly. Jump into the van. Off they go. That would be fine, except for in trying to close the door, Yen reaches out and gets his hand slammed in the van door. And it's yet another good example of adding complications to the plan as they go to make it seem more and more unlikely that they'll succeed. You know, it's well done to keep ratcheting up the tension. And it's a moment, too, to sort of put some doubt about Linus's abilities Mm-hmm. Because Danny chastises Linus at the time, you know, don't do any, go- I know, I know, I know, right? That's going to play in a little bit too, I think, to how Linus feels about himself on this crew and about Danny. That dynamic is going to play itself out here in just a yeah, little while. Yeah, to, to try to establish for the audience, whether authentically or not, that Linus is supposed to be the weak link here. He's the amateur. And if anybody's going to blow this for anyone, it's going to be him. Okay. Yeah, it plays beautifully that he gets kind of scolded, right, by Danny here. Yeah. Back at the hotel, after they have gotten the pinch, Livingston informs them immediately after having done this caper and thinking that we're ahead of the game, Livingston says they have another problem, and that problem is Danny. Because of his little visit over to see Tess, Danny has been red flagged, uh, meaning that he can't go anywhere now into any casino without being surveilled all the time. And that's bad. Can't do a lot of subterfuge when you're being constantly followed by goons. Yep. Does not sit well with Rusty. Rusty wants to know how it happens, turns to Linus. Linus reveals that he's been tailing Danny at Rusty's insistence Mm -hmm. and that he knows what Danny has been up to, that Danny has been chasing Tess. And so Rusty, being the co-head of this organization that's pulling off this heist, Rusty basically tells Danny, you're out. You're out. You're You're fired. And the other guys are like, can he do that? What do you mean he's out? What do you mean Danny's out? This is his, this is Ocean's Eleven, Rusty. (laughs) Do you know what it reminded me of? Rusty's Eleven. (laughs) Rusty's Eleven's a whole other movie. (laughs) 
It's a different thing. It's definitely another movie. There uh, are you- more trombones. <laughs> so happy I had that ready. Golf clap. <laughs> Breathe deeply. <sighs> This moment with Rusty firing Danny reminded me of Crimson Tide. Oh, oh, yes. Where Denzel Washington's character mm-hmm. fires, essentially, the captain mm-hmm. and says, I'm taking over the boat because that's his prerogative to do so. Correct. You're out of your depth, sir. You're out of your depth. Yep. Exactly. All right. So because Danny's out of it, Danny doesn't want to be out of it, but Danny is out of it. The whole crew is like, Danny's out. How can Danny be out? But he is. And so the job of being able to trigger the vault then goes to Linus. Linus. Can you handle it, Linus? What do you do, say no? Right, exactly. So Linus gets the job, and we're going to end off this plot discussion with the last beat of everything before we put the plan into motion. Linus being coached by Rusty about how to do the job. Be likable, but... Not too likable. Not too likable. Be funny, but not... Make him laugh, but don't be too funny. He's got to like you and forget you immediately. (laughs) Don't shift your weight. Yeah. And most of all, absolutely don't. And I think it's gets interrupted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Rusty, we need you. <laughs> yeah, what's up? Mm-hmm. And we never come back to it. No. And the last person that we see before the heist is put into motion is Saul. And Saul is getting dressed. He is uh, putting on his Zerga suit. You can tell that he is feeling ill, right? He's popping his antacids all the time. But he takes a look at himself in the mirror, kind of pulls himself together and says, okay, let's go do this. And that is where we get to to launch this big caper that we've been planning for and doing many heists and putting together a team for. We are about ready to pull that off and we will cover that plot in the next episode of Subgenre. And we'll be back with a little more before we go right after this. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts. Yes, I said thefts of the Mona Lisa, how the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. You are listening to Subgenre. We are here in studio talking about Ocean's Eleven from 2001. We're almost done, guys. At least uh, in terms of this episode. It has been a joy, sure. Josh. Yeah, I enjoy Thinking this. about how hard you're going to have to work to edit what we said. <laughs> it's been eight hours. These 26 hours of discussion <laughs> cut down to a nice trim four and a half minutes. In which we describe a movie. <laughs> Once you cut all of the asides out, it's just going to be a list of Ocean's plot Eleven was a movie. <laughs> it was certainly one of the movies of all time. I'm releasing this as a box set. <laughs> okay. Yes.
let us take a break from plot until we get to releasing part two of this, which will come at God knows when, but it will come, <laughs> listener. Instead, let's play You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is our multiple choice quiz segment here on Subgenre. I am going to ask you a multiple choice question. You are going to give me your best answer. And are we working as a team? No, actually, okay. I normally I would ask three questions to one person. I have come up with four questions. So I'm going to ask one individually to each of you. Ooh. We will see how you do. In this case, you got to get three out of four to win the prize. The prize, as always, is something that I have absolutely no way to give you. And for this version of You Can't Handle the Truth, you are playing for a little less conversation and a little more action. Oh, I want that. Please. Mm. All right, here we go. Uh, who wants to start? Who wants to be my first person? Make Alan pick? start. I'll go. Alphabetically, it just makes sense. Yes. Okay, I'll take Alan. Alan for a thousand, Alex. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready? Question number one, Alan. Here we go. I'm ready. In the early 1990s, Spanish record producer Gonzalo Garcia Palayo was banned from many casinos around the world for acting on what secret knowledge? Was it A, the exact probability of being dealt a winning hand in poker, B, the distinct sound of a slot machine ready to pay out, or C, the imperfections in a roulette wheel that could favor certain numbers? I'm going to go with B, the exact sounds of a slot machine getting ready to pay out. The sound of a slot machine ready to pay out? No, I'm Alan, so bad I'm at these sorry. trivia games. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you that makes sense, down, though. It's, is it the roulette wheel? It's the roulette wheel. Ah. Yeah, it was the roulette wheel. He, uh, Garcia Palayo noticed that certain numbers started coming up more frequently than others on a wheel, mm. and this, he found out, was due to minute inaccuracies with the measurements of the pocket sizes and the wheel's gears in manufacture that was throwing off its turning. And so he used some computer stuff. This made him able to, him and his family, by the way, able to predict the outcomes of a spin. And so after starting at casinos in Spain, he went to Vegas. They tried it in Vegas and ultimately won about $2 million before Holy banned for life <laughs> from hey, coming wow. into casinos. Take the money and run. Okay, that's only one down. Alan has lost you one, but- uh, You're welcome, fam. <sighs> Yet another Alan <laughs> disappointment. <laughs> always wins. It will not be the last. But the uh, but we got we got three more to go here. So uh, who wants to go second? I will. Here we go for Nick. I'm ready. Question number two. In 1998, 1998, an electronics technician for the Nevada Gaming Control Board named Ron Harris was convicted of using his position within the NGC to develop and operate what cheating scheme? Was it A, substituting computer chips in Keno machines to ensure a win, B, dumping fractions of every slot play to accumulate in a personal bank account, or C, building 15-second delays into games shown at sportsbooks in order to place sure bets on teams? All those are good schemes. I think B is the plot of Superman 3, weirdly enough. <laughs> I thought B was the plot of Office Space. It might be. Richard Pryor is trying to like round up everyone's paycheck by like four cents and dumping it into his <laughs> exact, like his bank account and Superman has to stop him. For some, it's a, not a good movie. I'm going to go with the last one. I think it was the last one. Building 15 second delays yeah, into sports games? Yeah, the delays games? into the sports games. Mother. 
No, I'm sorry. Actually, it was A. He oh. had access to slot machines and Kino machines, and so he was able to substitute computer chips that he programmed into the Kino machines so that they would pay out when a certain combination of things See, that seemed like the done. least likely one. That's a hell of a scheme. Wow. Yeah, and you're right, actually. B is the plot of Superman 3. Yes! It is also the plot of Office Space, and in Office Space, they reference that it's the plot of Superman 3. <laughs> yeah. My old roommate watched Superman 3 simply because of that reference. It's like, I should, I should know what this means. The person who did this, Ron Harris. So after successfully cheating slot machines for a bunch of years in Vegas, in 1995, him and a buddy named Reed McNeil, uh, they tried to do the same thing with Kino machines that they'd been doing with slot machines, and they did it in Atlantic City. They beat 230,000 to one odds by using these different series of commands to trigger a $100,000 jackpot. And the authorities got suspicious when the buddy, McNeil, gave no reaction at all when he won the money and then could produce no ID to collect the winnings. Amateur oh boy. So they show up at his hotel suite to see his ID, which is back at the hotel suite, and find the other guy in the hotel room who ultimately escapes, but leaves behind all of his manuals and notes and everything about how they were gonna do it. And then they capture the oh guy, uh, they capture Harris later in these Nevada. These guys are always such goobers. <laughs> there are no Danny Ocean. <laughs> Two down. Two to go. I, the little, little less conversation, a little more action may not still be on the table, oh but now you're just the uh, action. Now you're playing for the action okay. and what little pride you possess. Here we go. Who's going to be number three? I'm up. I'm up. In 1973, at the Casino Deauville in France, the location of the casino heist in Bob Le Flambeur, which was our season two, episode six uh, movie, a mm. woman named Monique Laurent led a roulette cheating team that was able to control the winning number of roulette with what pocketbook item? Was it A, a pack of cigarettes, B, a makeup compact, or C, a stick of chewing gum? Oh, geez. For some reason, the cigarette seems to play because it seems like clickable. Like you could, I can imagine someone depressing the top of a cigarette, but I think the compact makes the most sense given the gender of the person perpetrating the con. So I'm going to go... I'm going to go compact. It's the gum, isn't it? And because you were assuming things about gender, you got that one wrong. <laughs> Damn. It was actually the pack of cigarettes. You should have gone with I was wrong, oh. too. Depression. Um, it's the misogyny for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Laurent led what came to be known as the French cigarette pack scam. So she had a, herself and some accomplices, which included her brother. They couldn't um, have called it something cooler. I know. It was, <laughs> it's it's France. Her brother was a, was a roulette croupier, and her husband uh, was in here as well. It was very complicated in that they embedded a radio transmitter in a roulette ball, and then they had the opposite transmitter to tell it what to do in the pack of cigarettes. And oh, so damn. she would stand near the table and, you know, make the... See, I was imagining, like, oh, sticking a piece of gum in the wheel to make it turn weird. The way they captured her, really, was one of the people that started to get suspicious of why she was standing next to the table every time it did this, went over and asked her for a cigarette. And oh. when she was unable to produce the cigarette, she was arrested and found out. She was arrested and searched, but none of them for doing this whole thing, none of them served any prison time and she sort of became a folk hero. Good for her. Yeah. So y'all aren't Ocean's Eleven no. at this point. Uh, we are three, you know, zero for three. If everyone gets them wrong, really, it's the question asker who is. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no pressure, Charlotte. Okay. Okay, here we go. Are you ready, Charlotte, for question number four? I sure am not. Pay $1,600 to professional gambler Dominic Loregio and he offers to teach you what skill that he has reportedly developed and been banned from major casinos for. Is it A, 
sports betting ESP, B, controlled dice throwing, or C, stairs that can break a dealer's concentration? Stairs that can break a dealer's concentration. It's the it's the no. dice throw. I'm sorry. It's the controlled dice throw. Oh, it is. That was my first impulse, but then the last one sounded so cool. He's known as the dice dominator. At least that's what he calls no. himself. That's not good. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> he has developed what he says is an eight-step system to being able to throw dice in a controlled manner, also called rhythmic rolling. I don't nope, like that. No, either. Nope. no. <laughs> and uh, his company hosts seminars, so you can go to the seminar. You can pay him sixteen hundred dollars, and uh, you can learn this eight-step technique, but if you ask any real gamblers, they'll probably tell you it might not be worth the $1,600. Well, we're all the worst, everyone. Who can say? Well, I think this shows that uh, really it's the questions that were flawed. I agree. Yeah, that quiz segment didn't go as well as it could have gone, Give us I a guess. different one. I'm done with this episode. <laughs> okay. I'm done. This, so we're, we're going to sign out for this time. Again, there is a second episode that is coming that's going to handle part two of Ocean's Eleven coming at some point in the future. Please subscribe and stay tuned for that. I want to say thank you first to everybody here, both virtually and in person here covering this episode with me. You've spent hours here doing this. You did not have to spend, and I very much appreciate you doing that. I hope that you have had fun. Someone sent help. (laughs) I didn't know why the chairs had straps until I got here. I thought it was for a fun time. I built an exact replica of this podcast. There's a group of four people that look similar to us recording in there. Since I'm going to have hopefully all of you back for the next round of this episode, I'm going to take the time right before we go to let two of you kind of uh, plug yourself, uh, tell us about you, where we can find you. (laughs) Let's try that again. Let's try that again. What kind of show is this? And we'll, we'll start with Alan Maul. What you got going on, Alan? In addition to talking on microphone, I also write plays, and I've got a reading of one of my new plays coming up in September in Raleigh. It's called The Weight of Everything We Know, and it's going to be at the Theater Raleigh space, and uh, you can find out more about it at uh, capitalartsguild.com. If you Google The Weight of Everything We Know, Alan Maul, you'll be able to find out more. M-A-U-L-E. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Alan. What about you, Charlotte? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you're looking at me. I'm recently unemployed. Uh, so if you have a job, <laughs> that's Charlotte at Earthlink. GeoCities.org. Where can we watch your entertaining videos? I haven't made any entertaining videos. Where can we watch your almost entertaining videos? Ah, uh, you can watch them on TikTok, which is like the newspaper. But, but worst for Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, I'm Kavatica, C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A on TikTok. And uh, I make videos in my bathroom that are actually safe for the family to watch. <laughs> that is that really the pitch? <laughs> That's, That's how I felt about mine too. It makes you feel better. On that note, thank you to Charlotte Moore Lambert. Thank you, Nick Heim. Thank you, Alan Mall. Thank you, Fabian Marquez. And thank you to you for listening. We will see you next time. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest hosts, Charlotte Moore Lambert, Fabian Marquez, Alan Mall, and Nick Heim. 
Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. Listen to every episode of Subgenre and don't miss our new releases when you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you choose to listen. Tell all of your friends about us and where you can, leave us a five-star review. Please trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation to help keep us going. You'll find the link to do it, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Come back soon for part two of Ocean's Eleven in this, our season two about movies with charming thieves. And in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.